It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi everybody, I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight we're celebrating ourselves. 60 years ago this weekend, WAMU took to the airwaves for the very first time. Ironically, our station premiered during the last complete year of the golden age of radio, 1961. And there's a further irony, because some of the finest radio dramas were still on the air, like Suspense, Gunsmoke, and The Eternal Light. We'll hear them tonight, along with the comedy of The Joy Boys and Gene Shepard and NBC's Weekend Monitor Service, plus a couple of earlier shows like Dragnet and Norman Corwin's One World Flight. So forget about the worries of last week, or of the last 60 years for that matter, and don't worry about what's to come, because it's time to exercise your imagination here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. As it happens, we've been leading off our show recently with a run of programs from 1961 featuring the man with the action-packed expense account. And here's another one from September 10th of WAMU's anniversary year, the buyer and the seller matter. That's a pun that'll become apparent in a little while. The show comes from CBS and the series, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Johnny, this is Don Regal at Worldwide Mutual. Oh, sure, Don. Out in Chicago. Oh, no. Guess again. You've been moved? Yeah. Where? I hope it's been a promotion. Well, Johnny, I'm sitting here looking out the window of my office at the vast blue expanse of the mighty Pacific. Or at least I would be if the fog weren't so dark thick this afternoon. San Francisco. Right. One of my favorite towns. <laughs> Go on. I'll bet you say that to every city in the United States. No, I mean it. I have some real fond memories. Oh, yeah? Who is she, Johnny? I mean memories of nice, big, fat fees. Uh-huh. You know, Don, every case I've handled in that fair city of yours over the years has paid me very nicely. How about this one, Don? Uh, let's, uh, let's wait and see, huh? What's the problem? Man missing. Anybody I might know? Well, I doubt it. His name is Harvey Lehman. And, Johnny, I find we have the gentleman insured to the tune of exactly one quarter of a million dollars. Wow. Yeah. Okay, Don. I'm on my way. <laughs> Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer and the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Worldwide Mutual Insurance Company San Francisco office following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the buyer and the seller matter. Item one, after a quick early dinner, is $6 for a cab out to Badley Field, and item two, $175.70 plane fare. It was quite late by the time we sat down at San Francisco International Airport, so item three is another six bucks for a taxi into the Huntington Hotel, high on famous Knob Hill, where from my window I could look out over Telegraph Hill and Chinatown, Fisherman's Wharf, the Embarcadero and other familiar spots of this wonderful, colorful city. 
First thing in the morning, I dropped in on Don Regal at his office right near station KCBS that carries these reports of mine on CBS radio every week. You know, come to think of it, the last time I was in San Francisco, a couple of a minute KCBS helped me solve an important arson case. Yeah, I remember that one, Johnny. Uh, where are you staying this trip? Over at the Huntington, as usual. Well, I hope you didn't bother to unpack your bag. No? Why? Well, you may have a little more traveling to do. <laughs> what do you think I did to get out here? Have my way. I'd stick around and enjoy this time of year for a little while. Well, no reason why you shouldn't. You can come back after you've cleared up this case for us. And believe me, I hope you can, Johnny. What's it all about, Don? Well, as I told you on the phone, the man's name is Harvey Lehman. As I also told you, he's disappeared. And if somebody's knocked him off, you'll have to pay a nice hunk of insurance. Yeah, exactly $250,000. But if that man ever had an enemy, I'm crazy as a bedbug. Well, I've always suspected that. (laughs) Who's the beneficiary? His wife, Doris Lehman. They've been getting along all right? Mm, no, to be honest with you. Uh-oh, here we go again. Oh, no, wait a minute, Johnny. Don't start jumping to any fancy conclusions. Why not? That's a lot of money. Yeah, man. sure it is. But Harvey Lehman is only 48, 49. All right, so why wait around for him to grow old and die before no, collecting no, on no, him? No, 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 Johnny. What I mean is that he has a good business going and will be worth a lot more over the years than any hunk of insurance is now. Even 250 Gs? Even that. Even if it means putting up with him... Over the years? Well, any putting up with it, Johnny, I'd say, is on his part. How do you mean? Well, Lehman's a real solid, hard-working citizen who's so, well, so completely straight and decent that, well, he, he's the sort that other folks often take advantage of, especially his wife. Yeah? Domineering? She's overpowering. Mm. And while he's working, she's spending, and not on him or his house, anything like that, mind you, but on her own selfish self. Well, then you've just opened up possibility number two. That he's disappeared deliberately to get away from her? Yeah, no. Why not? Well, he's simply not the type. And there's a, well, there's a stubborn streak in him, Johnny, and I'm sure he'd keep trying to make a go of it in the hope that she'd get over this extravagance and nagging one day, and... Well, I just don't think he'd give up. I know he wouldn't run away. Maybe. Maybe not. I'm sure of it. How long ago did he disappear? Um, by the way, what sort of business is he in? Well, he's a buyer, Johnny. I guess you'd call him a commission buyer. Oh, a buyer of what? Well, uh, antiques, that sort of thing. Mm. If you want a giant ruby from some ancient Persian idol, layman would get it for you if anyone could. Or, or the suit of armor that King Arthur wore. Or, a, or even a whole room from some Scottish castle. You know that sort of thing. Uh-huh. Well, anyhow, he left here just a week ago. A week ago? Mm-hmm. Well, that means a pretty cold trail. Yeah, I know. He told his wife he was going down to Los Angeles, to Beverly Hills to be exact, to see a man. Told her he'd be back the following day. But he wasn't. Any reason why he couldn't have just stayed over for a while? Well, look, Johnny, if Lehman said he'd show up at 9.16 on Tuesday morning, he'd be there at 9.16 on Tuesday morning on the nose. Not a minute sooner, not a minute later. That kind. Yeah, that kind. Anyhow, Johnny... I've checked every hotel and apartment down there, so the police. There's been no sign of him. What about this man that he went to see? Well, his name is John Arthur Whittington Maynard. I've been on the phone with him. The police have been on the phone with him half a dozen times. Layman never showed up. Maynard. John Arthur Whittington. Yeah, you remember him, Johnny. Big produce snake of a lot of big movies some 30 years ago. Well, at least they made a lot of money. Yeah. All of them horror films, Edgar Allan Poe and Vampire and Werewolf sort of stuff, before all this science fiction type of stuff came along. The old screwball made himself millions. Mm. Well, why did Lehman say he was going on? Well, like I said, Lehman was a buyer of some pretty unusual stuff on, on commission. And I understand Maynard has a house full of it. Now, wait a minute now. Don, isn't he the one who had an old movie set, an old castle moved onto some property to use for a home? Yeah, that's the one. You've probably seen it in one of the picture magazines. But now, 
To get back to Lane, uh, you better give me a description. Well, let's see. Here's the stuff on him, Johnny, all scribbled out for you. Thanks. And if you want a picture without having to go to the police, his wife has promised to have one for you. Good. Because she's the one person that I want to talk to about this. Now, have you got a car I can use? No, sure, you can have mine. But listen, Johnny, so far as Mrs. Lehman is concerned, I thought I made it clear a couple of minutes ago. Okay, that... Don, okay. Well, let's just wait and see. The Lehman house was up in Marin County over the Golden Gate Bridge, and it was quite a mansion. From the minute I stepped inside, it was plain who dominated this household. The rugs, every piece of furniture, every bit of decoration, everything was in the unmistakable taste of a woman. Even Layman's so-called study would have done much better as a stone room. There was certainly no place where a man could open his collar, take off his shoes, put up his feet, and relax. And the more I talked with Doris Layman, the more I became convinced that one of two things had happened. Either he, in spite of what Donna told me, either he'd skipped out simply to get away from her, or she had done him in for that insurance. Four cars left out in blank, or in unheated garages. Don't ask the trouble, ask for to bite, Xerox, anti-freezer. Wintertime is trouble time for many of us who leave our cars out at night or in unheated garages. So don't ask for trouble. Ask for DuPont Xerox Antifreeze. Xerox outlasts winter. It protects your car against sudden drops in temperature all winter long. It won't boil away even during a warm spell. And Xerox has an exclusive rust inhibitor, MR8, that protects all engine metals, including aluminum, against rust and corrosion. So for safe, dependable protection, do as millions of motorists have done for over 20 years. Ask for Xerox Antifreeze. It's made by DuPont. Remember, four cars left out at night or in unheated garages. Don't ask for trouble. Ask for DuPont Xerox Antifreeze. Now, just a minute, young man. If you came out here to insult me... I'm sorry, Mrs. Lehman. You very well should be. But in my job, we have to consider all the possibilities. Ridiculous. Do you think for one minute I'd dirty my hands with such a low act as murder? It's ridiculous. Even for a quarter of a million? Make no mistake about it, Mr. Dollar. Harvey is worth a great deal more to me alive than he might ever be dead. He's done very well for me and will continue to. If you can find him and bring him back to me... I'm sure he will. Of course he will. Have you considered that he might have just wanted to get away from you for a while? I beg your pardon. Harvey, just run off and leave me? Well? He wouldn't dare. I wonder. Well, you can stop wondering right here and now. Harvey would no more... He would no more... Yes? Go on, Mrs. Raymond, or about hit a sore spot. Mr. Dollar, if I thought for one minute... If it were possible that you were right. No. No, I refuse to believe it. And if you have no better theory, I suggest you get out of here and forget the whole thing. If he's to be found, the police can do it. Have they accomplished anything as yet? No. Big talking, do-nothing men. They haven't accomplished a thing. And those bumbling, movie-struck police down there in Beverly Hills are just as bad. Now, just a minute. It just happens that Beverly Hills is a mighty fine police department. I know. I've worked with them. Then why haven't they found him? That's where Harvey went. Well, how do you know? 
How do you know that he ever got there? Because he telephoned me from Mr. Maynard's home. If you can call that atrocity a home. He said that's where he was calling from? The night of the morning he left here, Harvey always calls me when he gets to a destination, wherever it is. I insist on it. And naturally, Harvey obeys. I'm sure he does. Did you tell that to the police? Well, of course I... Yes? Yeah? No. No, I guess... I was so confused. These stupid police annoy me so with their endless questions and insinuations. They're even worse than you are. Thank you very much. What? Don't you realize they're only trying to do a job for you? Well, then why don't they? Why don't they know that Harvey got there? Because you didn't tell them. Why did he go to see Mr. Maynard? To collect some money due for a lot of junk he bought for him. $10,000. Junk? Oh, chunks from some ancient Roman ruin. Artifacts out of the temple of some old pagan god. And a lot of other nonsense that castle is stuffed with. Maynard simply refused to pay. He told Harvey he should feel honored for having been able to contribute to the decoration of that silly place. And that if he didn't stop dunning him, he'd... He'd... He'd uh, what, Mrs. Lemon? Oh, I don't know. All I know is that he threatened Harvey. And more than once. For simply trying to collect a bill? Well, you don't know that crazy old Maynard. Well, I guess I don't. Anyhow, I got fed up with it. I told Harvey to go down there and collect that money or else. <laughs> Why should I tell you this? I don't like you. It's none of your business. So just leave and forget about it. Goodbye, Mr. Dollar. I was afraid if I lingered any longer, she'd literally throw me out. So I got the next bit of information, my telephone number from the phone book in my room at the Huntington. Then I put through a call, not to her, but to an old pal of mine. Under the circumstances, it wouldn't be uh, diplomatic to give his right name, so we'll just call him Brady. Sergeant Brady of the Beverly Hills Police Department. And 15 minutes later, he called me back. Johnny Dollar. Brady, Johnny. Yeah. Well, as you suggested, I snooped the phone company, and yes, there was a call to that Marin County number the same night Lehman should have arrived down here. All right, then, Brady. So, maybe old Maynard called to see why he hadn't. He must have known Lehman was planning to come. I don't think so. I don't think Maynard would have called because I don't believe he did know Lehman was heading your way. Oh, you don't, huh? What's more, it was Lehman himself who made that call. No, wait a minute. You're sure of that? Yes. At least that's what I was told by... Yeah, Johnny? Well, maybe I'm not sure. Well, if you're thinking that maybe Lehman did get here and that maybe they had a fight or something, well, Johnny, we thought of that, too. You see, we know that wacky old Maynard pretty well. He's a real nut. And if you don't believe me, just dig up some of those old horror pictures he used to make. Wow. <laughs> I know what you mean. Made a lot of the props for him, too, with his own little hands. Anyhow, just in case, some of the boys and I went through that joint of his from stem to stern. And? Nothing. Zero. No sign of Lehman or anybody else. We even tapped on walls and took measurements, looking for hidden rooms or secret panels, that sort of thing. Nothing. But you did suspect him. Did? Yeah. But only because that crazy old man, just to be dramatic, might try most anything, just for kicks. Even murder? Murder. So what's a murder to him? I mean, after all those he put on film? But you know something? No. If that ham ever did kill somebody, why, Johnny, he'd be the first one to ask us over. He'd probably lead us right to where he'd hidden the stiff after fixing it so we wouldn't see it. Just to show off? Yeah, sure. That's why we went over the place so carefully. Even poked around in all the old suits of armor that he kept pointing out to us. Brady, how long are you going to be on duty? Well, I'm off in half an hour, but now listen, Johnny, if you think you have some well, ideas... Well, I'm not sure, but maybe I'll run on down then. If so, I'll holler. Yeah, you do that. 
even for a cab to the airport, a jet to Los Angeles, and a deposit on a rental car. I drove into Beverly Hills to police headquarters. As I suspected, Brady wasn't there, nor did a phone call raise him at his home. However, the officer on the desk promised to keep trying and gave me some directions, so I took off. After leaving a pleasant residential section, I took a narrow dirt road high up the side of a mountain. I could see all of Beverly Hills and most of Los Angeles spread out below me, and Catalina Island over 20 miles out in the blue Pacific like a jewel, fairly sparkling in the late afternoon sun. I could also see the crummy castle where John Arthur Whittington Maynard lived alone among the tattered glories of his past in the film business. And suddenly, that wee small voice in the back of my brain spoke out loud and clear. Watch it, Dollar. You may be getting into more than you bargained for, so watch it, Dollar. Watch it. In thousands of communities throughout the nation, this is the time of year when we strive to help our less fortunate neighbors. Not that we don't try to help all year round, it's just that now many health, recreation, and welfare agencies band together in a common fundraising campaign. When you give just once to your United Fund or community chest, you help many people in your city, the sick, the needy, the aged, the serviceman, and veterans. So give the United Way, and please give generously. Picture it for yourself. This castle, once a movie set, built up among the rocks and boulders at the top of a mountain. Complete with gray stone walls, battlements, a gallery between the towers, and believe it or not, even a moat with a heavy wooden drawbridge. I almost expected to see the bridge thump down and a half a dozen fully armored knights come galloping out to challenge me with lances at the ready. Instead, as I drew up in front of it, the bridge was lowered slowly. There was something almost ominous about the creaking and clanking of its iron chains. And then standing there, the man. Or rather, the caricature of a man. It was short, heavy set, and in a way almost grotesque. The ugly face, the, the eyes of a pig, the long, black, straggly hair and three or four day growth of beard. The heavy, beefy shoulders hunched forward. I thought of Quasimodo, the horrible hunchback of Notre Dame. Welcome, sir. Welcome to my castle. Oh, how do you do, uh, Mr. Maynard, is it? That's right. Surely you heard of me. As a matter of fact... Come in, come in. It's, it's not often I have visitors. Someone to show my place to. So few people even know of my beautiful castle. My name is Dollar, Mr. Maynard. I'm an insurance investigator. Insurance? Not a salesman. I'll have none of it. Get out. Leave my place. No, I said I was an investigator, Mr. Maynard. I'm trying to find oh. out what happened to a Mr. Harvey Lehman. Harvey? Oh, yes, yes, of course. A, a very old and very dear friend of mine. Come. Let me show you some of the wonderful things he has brought me over the years. Well, I would like to ask... Magnificent suits of armor, regal pendants and banners, beautiful tapestries. Pinning him down to talk about Harvey Lehman was almost impossible. But I must confess that the trip around that phony castle was interesting, to say the least. Much of what he showed me deserved a place in a museum real collector's items. And some of the props from old horror pictures that he made were, were just fascinating. Especially down in one of the dank, 
dark, dirty dungeons, ancient instruments of torture, the rack, the wheel, the Iron Maiden, a metal boot to be filled with boiling oil. From my pictures, Dollar, from my pictures, realism, that's what I had in, in all of them, because I was the greatest plotter of them all. When it came to mystery and torture and murder... Uh, and, uh, get back to Mr. And, Lehman. And can you think of a better place to keep them than down here in this dusty old dungeon, eh? Yes, very fitting. Now, 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 I mean, here. I must show you my, my wine cellar. Uh, there are still a couple of questions, though, that I... Twenty-nine years ago, I laid down the wines in here. Yes, all, all that time they've been aging in here. Cases and cases of them, rack after rack. Do you see them under the dust and cobwebs? Finest vintages of all. Yes, all sure. Now, Mr. Menard. Yes, 29 years ago, when I retired and moved into this place, I, I put these wines down here. So you said. You can tell how long by the dust and the cobwebs. Yes, I know. Spiders. They're undisturbed for 29 years. One thing more, though, about Mr. Lehman. No, no, I, I told you, Mr. Dollar. I, I know nothing, nothing whatsoever about him. When did you see him last? Oh, almost a year ago. You sure about that? Yes, yes, I'm sure. Oh, look. Look here, this case of port. No label. But the, 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 the finest vintage port. Uh, Mr. Menon? Over here, here. And do you, do you see them? The, the cherries. Magnificent cherries. And, and the longer they lie there, oh, undisturbed, the finer they'll be. You never drink them? Hmm? Drink them? Such treasures. <laughs> drink them indeed. Look at this one. The color of this ancient sherry. Hold it up to the light. There. You see? Yes, I'm afraid I do now. What? I see. Realism, you said. Didn't you mean what looks like realism? No. By the time it was shown on a movie screen? I, I, I don't understand, Mr. Dollar. Tell me the truth, Mr. Maynard. These torture machines, for instance, in the other room, and some of that armor upstairs. Well, some of that armor cost me a fortune because it's, it's genuine. Maybe so, some of it. But how about the rest? You mean, you mean you could tell? That it's only imitation? Stuff that was made up for some of your old movies? But I made it myself. I, I have a skill in such things. I thought it was perfect. It would have fooled me, all right. Well, then I, I don't understand. Even as the dust down here and the cobwebs fooled the police, too, didn't they? Hmm? What? What? When they came around here a few days ago for a look. Now, just a minute. Now, that's by way of showing off, you dragged them down to this wine cellar, too. You were so sure of yourself. Dollar. Phony cobwebs are almost like the real thing. Phony? All the dust. What is it, man? It's full of earth that you've scattered around? You don't know what you're talking about. The whole setup would have fooled me royally if you hadn't picked up that bottle of wine and held it up to light. I'm going to take a look under some of these cases, Mr. No! You leave them alone! Why? Because they cover up something you don't want me to see? No, 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 don't do that. What was the name of that gruesome old picture in which you had a man buried under a cellar floor? I said stop it! If you don't, I'll, I'll pull this trigger! Oh, I see. Yes. That wild, silly guess of mine paid off. That's right. 
Harvey Lehman is, is buried under your feet, and you will join him there. Now, put down that gun, Mr. Maynard. Stand back, Gower. You heard him, Maynard. What? Put it down. The police. I'll kill you. Watch him, Brady. Thanks, Brady. Well, it was a pleasure, Johnny. I'm sure glad you left word for me at headquarters. Oh, believe me, so am I. And he certainly fooled us when the boys and I went through here a couple of days ago. But how did you ever guess? A bottle of wine when he held it up to the light? Well? He said it was fine little sherry. Lying around down here for 29 years. So? Sherry? We should have been a sediment in that bottle this thick. Uh-huh. So the age and dust and cobwebs were a fake, huh? And he must have moved the bottles over this spot only recently. That's right. I just took a wild guess. <laughs> you know the rest. Pretty smart, Johnny. Pretty smart. Needless to say, wild as the whole thing may seem, they found Lehman's body buried there in the summer. Expense account total, including the trip back to Hartford by way of San Francisco to pick up my clothes, four seventy-seven thirty. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. tell you about next week's story. Next week, Savannah, Georgia, after one of the cleverest crooks I've ever had to tangle with. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is written by Jack Johnstone, produced and directed by Bruno Zarato Jr., music supervision by Ethel Huber. Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in our cast were Leon Jenny as Maynard, Gertrude Warner as Doris Lehman, William Redfield as Brady, and Carl Frank as Don Regal. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is our Hannah speaking. The Buyer and the Seller Matter. Seller, get it? An episode of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, from just about six weeks before WAMU went on the air in 1961. A few years later, the late John Hickman started what would become this show, The Big Broadcast, here on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Well, speaking of John Hickman and his successor, my other predecessor, Ed Walker, Thank goodness WAMU began about 15 years after the tape recorder had revolutionized radio production because, as a result, we have a recording of the two of them together, and it comes from a pre-Christmas show from 31 years ago. Just listen to the ease and informality of their on-air presence and the ideas their conversation conveys, and you'll understand why co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and I approach our work on this show with such gratitude and respect every week. Here are my two distinguished predecessors on a WAMU Big Broadcast and Recollections special from December of 1990. It starts with the voice of Ed's partner, Willard Scott, in 1965 when the two of them were doing their immensely popular Joy Boys show on WRC here in Washington. 
Some wonderful people with us again tonight, visiting our little studio here on Nebraska Avenue, and we're just delighted that people could come by. You all are fans of the Joy Boys, right? Uh, not necessarily. Well, <laughs> throw the rascals out. We have a little girl over here, and of course Santa Claus just walked in the door. Oh, 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 we have a lovely little girl here who's going to tell Santa Claus what she would like for Christmas. Now, what would you like Santa Claus to bring you for Christmas? A pair of earplugs so I don't have to listen to this stone show. Get that key. Play the theme, man. the joy boys of radio we chase electrons to and fro we are the joy boys of radio we chase electrons to and fro My name is John Hickman. The program is The Big Broadcast, and tonight we're uh, spending some uh, an hour or so of uh, Christmas memories with uh, Ed Walker and Willard Scott, the Joy Boys. Eddie Walker is here live. Willard uh, is on tape. We have some nice teenagers in the studio tonight, and I want to thank them. They did something I thought was awfully clever and original. They sawed down WTOP's tower and brought it over here and left it out in front of the NBC Can building. We, uh, we get our zip guns back. We had to check them at the door. We'll, we'll give them back to you in a moment. Okay, I just well, want to make sure. Nice, oops, there goes another T.O.P. light bulb. We're going to hit a... All right, hold on to your hats. Let's see if we hit the T.O.P. tower. Beautiful. Bullseye. Got Eddie Gallagher right in his stuff. Hey, that was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that auspicious oh, beginning dear, oh, dear. from December the 21st, 1965, this is John Hickman. Welcome to uh, the Recollections portion of our big broadcast. And tonight, I've titled our program Christmas with the Joy Boys, Ed Walker and Willard Scott. And uh, joining me live in the studio tonight is uh, a man that, well, is almost a legend in Washington radio. Mm. And uh, I know ev one of everybody's favorites, Ed Walker. Eddie, welcome back to the big broadcast. John, what a treat to be here. Gee, that's 25 years ago we did that stuff. That's hard to believe. And we did that shooting out of the tower lights every year. You know, that was kind of a traditional thing. You know, a lot of people might have forgotten or that are new to the area that uh, WTOP used to yeah, stream Christmas lights. all the way up the tower. All the way up the top yeah. of the tower. And you could see it all over town. That's right. And we would, <laughs> on our New Year's Eve show, about once an hour, we'd have somebody shoot the lights out on the tower, take a pot <laughs> shot at the tower. But uh, Willard, I uh, could not uh, contact Willard. I think he's working on a special, which is going to be on the network this week, and that's is unavailable. He's hosting the Clio Awards, Yes, I think. yes, that's uh, what it yeah. is. But uh, tonight we're going to recall a lot of the uh, wonderful uh, comedy skits that uh, Ed and uh, Willard used to do over on WRC. Uh, do you area. think there's anybody listening that remembers this stuff? Oh, I think there's a lot of people out there. I know you have a vast audience on Sunday night. It's a regular habit with me listening to, uh, I've told you that uh, Lum and Abner is one of my, because I think of my mother who loved Lum and Abner. And, uh, you know, Cedric and all that stuff. Yeah. And Gunsmoke. I was a big fan of Gunsmoke on radio. And, and the Lone Ranger. Sure. I love all that stuff. Yeah. You know, he made a very interesting point there, Eddie. And that's something that we don't have much of in radio anymore. Your show, the Joy Boys show, in the evenings and the afternoon when it was on, was a family-type show. Well, that's something true. Something for the whole family. It really bridged the generation gap. Sure because the show was, in some ways, uh, clever enough that adults enjoyed it. And yet it was silly enough 
that kids got a kick out sure. of it. You know, Robin Hood, Rock Creek Park, and <laughs> stuff like that, and some of the things we did. And, uh, you know, our soap opera was the adults liked as the worm turns because it was a play on uh, other soap operas and things like that, you know. And, you know, when I was uh, trying to select some of these skits tonight, I came across something we'll have to air sometime. Do you remember the Masterpuss Theaters? Oh, yes. That oh, yeah, a, they ran the those on NPR, as a matter of fact. Yeah, the, uh, Henry VIII. <laughs> that's right. The radio sure was fun, wasn't it? It was fun. It was fun. It was fun doing those things, too. Yes, it really indeed. was. Ed Walker and John Hickman on an earlier edition of our show, The Big Broadcast, from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz, uncharacteristically humbled by hearing those two tremendous voices from the past to whom we owe so much. One thing for which I'm very grateful is a professional hazard John and Ed acknowledged as they continued their conversation. As we say nowadays, I can relate. Well, radio is a funny thing. It's uh, something I've learned over the last 20-some years or so on the air is that people... To us, so often we come in here, we sit down, we do a show live, or we tape it, we pack up and leave, you know, we do our thing and yeah. go. And we forget a lot of times there's an audience out there. Yes, indeed. And, uh, boy, they do remember. Sure do. You, you are so right. You'd be amazed when you run into people who said, do you remember the time that you did so? And I mean, some of these bits, quite honestly, I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> when I heard some of the stuff on tape, and, uh, you know, it's, it's funny to me even today. Oh, yeah. And very immodest to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact that we're playing them, I think, is a, is, a, is a mark that they still are good. Well, that's our show tonight on uh, the, the recollections portion of our big broadcast. Lots of fun for me. Thank you for having I'm me. I'm tickled to death to have had Ed Walker, one of the Joy Boys, with us tonight, Willard Scott on tape. And uh, you're going to be back, I know. Uh, we're going to be doing some uh, fun things New Year's Eve uh, here on... Uh, the yeah, station. Maybe we'll shoot out the tower, the lights on the tower again. Huh? Uh, well, I'd like to. <laughs> I don't think I don't think they like the tower. Oh, I, they don't. It, how many years has it been? Now, there's boy, there's an interesting trivia facet for Washington Radio. How long has it been since T.O.P. has well, lit that 25 tower? Twenty-five years, about. Ooh, is it that long? I know, maybe mm-hmm. not. I don't know. <laughs> well, again, thank you very much for sure, joining us tonight, pleasure. Ed, and uh, thanks to the many folks that uh, called in. I wish we would have had time to talk. John Hickman who passed away in 1999, and Ed Walker, who left us in 2015, on an edition of this program, The Big Broadcast, from 1990, possibly from December 20th. It's part of our celebration of the 60th anniversary of our station, WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Joining Ed Walker in the National Radio Hall of Fame is another WAMU alum, NPR's glorious Susan Stamberg. We sat down for a conversation earlier this month when she was kind enough to answer some of my questions about the early days of the station and of this program. Susan Stamberg, welcome to the big broadcast, and thanks so much for being here. You're very welcome. I'm probably one of the earliest listeners to this program. Yeah, no doubt. I want to ask you about that because I came to D.C. in 87 and I started listening and I loved John Hickman's voice and his taste. And he really established the aesthetics and the foundation for this show, for the big broadcast. But I'm sorry I never met him. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, he was a very quiet guy. He was rather well-groomed. We were on the AU campus at that time, and I was at work. It was one of my very earliest years there, and I saw this guy, and he had a big chunk of 
copy paper in one hand and a big stack of LPs. Does anybody remember LPs? Probably not. Vinyl. Vinyl is back. Yeah, big vinyl <laughs> records. And in he came, almost staggering uh, under the weight of them. Oh, my goodness. So I thought, who is this fellow? Well, we became friends over time, of course, because he was a lovely man. He really was. He was very sweet. He adored old-time radio, so we had that much in common, of course. And you could tell the way he hosted that just his affection for the medium was like there in every sentence. Absolutely. And that private collection must have been extraordinary because he would come in with stacks like that week after week. And it's still extraordinary. Um, he donated his collection to American University. Some of those treasures we're able to play here on the big broadcast. Now, so you were, when he came around, because you worked in so many capacities at the station early on. Every single one. Give me a hat, I would wear it. And they always did because there were, I was the only hired, <laughs> I was the only non-student employee on the staff of three. And so that was a heavy load for me to carry, almost as heavy as his LP record. But boy, is that a way to learn radio. It was fabulous. Was it your decision to put what became the big broadcast, Recollections, on the air? No. Uh, it was the, manager, the then manager who departed, leaving me with a whole ball of wax. It was George Giese, who physically built the station. He and, a, and one of the professors, uh, Roger Penn, were the two who really, and the engineer was in, in on it as well. But they did all the wiring and they did all the planning and they set up the board. This was, uh, as I said, back on the campus. The building still stands, by the way, and it's a, it was an award-winning building in its day. Today it will look to you like a cigar box or something, but it, it was then was modern. Was it just blind luck because they needed stuff to fill the air that they put John on the air, or did they, was it a real deliberate decision? Oh, I think at that point, uh, which was maybe a year or two into the existence of the station, we were a little more sophisticated than that. I mean, the desperation <laughs> level had gone down a bit. But, uh, but George was looking for material, and Hickman came in with this idea, and George liked it, because everybody there loved and everybody, so many people out in the real world love old-time radio. If they're old enough, and the young ones love it too, you know, because they've never heard anything like it. Right, right, right. Then everybody remembered the shows like Gunsmoke and Dragnet and, and you know, Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Now it is no longer a nostalgia show because there are fewer and fewer of us who actually remember listening to those shows. If you would play the old show Grand Central Station – back-to-back back on one entire evening of the big broadcast, you would have no happier listener than I. I love that show. As a little girl, I listened every Saturday afternoon. I was crazy about it, and I still am. Murray, your host, Murray Horowitz, has been kind enough to send me links to about a thousand old shows. No, and when I no, get no, no. Maybe six, right? Uh, no, it's about a dozen of them. And happily, there are not that many Grand Central stations still extant. Well, there, you know what? There's some John Hickman at home who's got all the copies of the whole thing. Uh, I don't know on what, maybe cylinders. Uh, and he could bring it, he or she could bring it in and we could be, have a listen-a-thon. It's too bad because it has, it, it is one of, 
my candidates, your everybody's candidates for one of the greatest openings of any as a bullet seeks its target. You know, it's as a bullet seeks its target, shining rails in every part of our great country are aimed at, at Grand Central Station. Drawn by the magnetic force of the fantastic metropolis, day and night great trains rush toward the Hudson River, sweep down its eastern bank for 140 miles, flash briefly down the long red row of tenement houses south of 125th Street, dive with a roar and dive with a roar into the two and one half mile tunnel that burrows beneath the glitter and swank of Park Avenue, and then, and then. Grand Central Station, crossroads of a million private lives, gigantic stage on which are played a thousand dramas daily. Ooh. Oh, brava, brava. Is that great That's writing? Great. Does anyone write oh, like wonderful. that today? It's it's just wonderful. And I have to tell you, I have nothing else in my life memorized. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and that's good and long, isn't it? Susan, recite the First Amendment to the Constitution <laughs> of the United right. States. You can't do it, right? It's no. the Grand Central Station <laughs> opening. You can do it. That's great. That's just wonderful. I, I don't know if you remember, one of the most important moments of my life was our listeners don't know this, but the only person I knew at NPR before I went to work at NPR was Susan Stamberg. And when they finally said, okay, you have the job, I said, I have to talk to, I can't take this job without clearing it with Stamberg, right? So we went to lunch and you said something about making great radio. And I said, fool that I am. I said, what makes great radio? And you burst out laughing with that wonderful Stamberg laugh. And you said, you'll find out or something like that's like asking me asking you what makes great musical theater i said oh i get it right so but you do you see look at that well and one of the elements and we say this to the audience sometimes it's just great writing just great writing is enough to compel a listener's attention and sometimes it's great sound and sometimes you know other things wonderful stories thank you so much susan stamberg radio hall of famer good friend Happy 60th anniversary. Uh, happy anniversary to you all, too. It's terrific. And thank you, John Hickman, for being such a lover of what we do. NPR's and WAMU's Susan Stamberg in a conversation she and I recorded just about three weeks ago. Now we'd like to play some of your voices. So many of you were kind enough to answer our call for your memories of John Hickman, Ed Walker, and the big broadcast, and your congratulations on the occasion of WAMU's 60th anniversary. A little embarrassingly, you also said nice things about our stewardship of this precious cultural resource, and we're deeply grateful. Here's some of what we received, beginning with a listener from one of my favorite fishing spots. Hi, this is Cheryl Henley from Chesapeake Beach, Maryland. I have been listening to WAMU over 20 years. Um, I've been in the area for about 30. So uh, most of the time I've been here, maybe 25. And I love the big broadcast. So congratulations on 60 years. I wish you 60 more. And I look forward to enjoying the future with you. Hi, this is James Rana. And I've been listening to the big broadcast now for a little over 10 years. And one thing I love about it is that it takes me back in time. That I get to actually tune on the radio and sometimes, you know, log on and I'm hearing it in real time. And that is such a wonderful thing. And it's 
it's such an important thing to preserve classic radio. Thank you, WAMU. Thank you for entertaining me and taking me on wonderful adventures. I'm Kim Cruz reporting live for WKRUZ, here to find out what the person in the street thinks of the big broadcast. Oh, excuse me, sir. Do you have a moment to speak with WKRUZ? What? Oh, yeah, of course. But wait, aren't you that famous, exciting, and elegant young reporter Kim Cruz? Why, yes, I am. And your name, sir? My name is Alejandro Cruz. And do you ever listen to the big broadcast? Absolutely. Every Sunday night since 2012 on WAMU 88.5 or online at WAMU.org. What makes you keep bringing your ears back? Well, all art reflects the time in which it's created. So the dramas, comedies, and even recordings of live newscasts featuring important events such as this one allow one to immerse oneself, truly understand history, and momentarily live in the past, despite never having lived through the experiences depicted. You've heard it here first, folks. This has been Kim Cruz. And Alejandro Cruz. On on why why we we love the the big big broadcast. Wow, they even made their own classic radio show. Those were some of the messages we received from you earlier this month here at the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. We'll have more of your memories throughout the show tonight as we celebrate the 60th anniversary of our station, WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Another way we're marking this anniversary is by playing some of what you would have heard on the radio in 1961, the year WAMU took to the airwaves. As long-form radio drama and comedy shows were overtaken by television, music programming dominated the audio-only medium, especially in the form of local disc jockey shows led by the Top 40 radio format. But network radio came up with some marvelous adaptations, too, and one of the greatest, if not the greatest, was NBC's weekend service, Monitor. It was a mix of music, news, comedy, commentary, and odd bits of, well, just great radio. The man who created it, NBC's president, Pat Weaver, described it as a kaleidoscopic phantasmagoria. Personalities were a big part of Monitor, and among the hosts, guests, and regulars were such announcers as Hugh Downs and Red Barber, such comedians and singers as Henry Morgan, Selma Diamond, Harry Belafonte, Jonathan Winters, Bob and Ray, Mike Nichols and Elaine May, Sammy Davis Jr., and the NBC newsman we're about to hear, Frank McGee. Somehow, Monitor managed to weave together serious news dispatches, lighthearted comedy, sports, music, and many other elements amazingly seamlessly. To illustrate, here's an excerpt from the year we're celebrating, 1961, and significantly, it comes from the very end of that year, New Year's Eve, in fact, when folks were looking back at the past 12 months and ahead to 1962. With some promotional announcements that give us a glimpse of what radio was like 60 years ago, and one of the great audio logos of all time, the signature monitor beacon, it's part of the Sunday, December 31st, 1961 edition of NBC's 
Monitor. Jimmy Wallington here on what is about to be Monitor 62. And now, here's our Sunday night host, Frank McGee. December 31st, 1961, just a few hours away from the new year, which will bring to each of us we know not what. Do you meet the new year with a shout and a whistle and a paper hat? Do you greet it as a wonderful blank page on which to write new and exciting things? Or are you thoughtful and pensive on New Year's Eve? Do you ponder a little seriously about what may lie ahead? Whichever type you are, there's one thing we wonder about you. If you were given an infallible crystal ball and allowed to see what will happen to you in the 365 days ahead, would you really look into it? Would you really want to see and know? Or would you rather go along meeting each day as it comes and in your heart expecting that something good, something unexpected may happen tomorrow? After all, isn't that part of the fun of life? No, I don't think I'd like to look into that infallible crystal ball. You really? All right, maybe one quick peek. Now here's Monitor. A little later tonight, following an old NBC tradition, Ben Grower will be over in Times Square to describe the coming in of 1962 in what is probably the most famous New Year's celebration in the world. Before he sets out tonight, we're going to ask Ben to tell us some of his experiences through the years as NBC's Mr. Times Square. I don't know whether he's ever been called that, but we're giving him the name now anyway. Ben, where in Times Square are you when you broadcast the midnight celebration? It's the first time I've been called Times Square, Frank. <laughs> Square, yes, frequently. Let's see, the position is uh, on the marquee of the Hotel Astor. For those who don't know Times Square intimately, there's an, a triangle formed. The lower base of the triangle is the Times Building at 43rd, and mm -hmm. the apex of the triangle is about six blocks up at mm -hmm. the 47th Street. Right square in the middle is the... Famed Astor Hotel, a landmark since the 1900s. Toscanini stayed there when he first came to America and so on. The marquee juts out over the uh, uh, plaza formed by the deserted streets, deserted of traffic, that is, mm -hmm. and that's where we have our vantage point, about 30 or 40 feet above the crowd. No traffic is permitted in Times Square from approximately 10.30 on when the crowds start to gather, 11 o'clock. Well, you're right in the center of things. You We're see in the center and above. That's mm -hmm. essentially get uh, a vantage point, a bird's eye view. Mm-hmm. Must seem awfully noisy to you, right in the middle of it. Noisy? Uh-huh. Frank, I've been in the sheet and tube works in Pittsburgh, <laughs> where I heard 40-ton uh, hammers banging away at steel. I've been in the belly of a ship as the motors were throbbing in the old days, when they in steam days. And uh, nothing parallels this surge of sound that, that starts to build around the... Well, ten minutes of, but fifteen minutes of eleven. I guess you can almost feel it physically beating against physically, you. Physically, it actually has an impact. So I've seen people wince when the climactic moment comes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's uh, I suppose as the ball on the Times Tower ah. starts to drop. Uh, yes. Uh, what happens to the crowd? Then? Well, by tradition, let's first to talk about that ball on the old uh, flatiron-shaped building of the old Times Building. The Times is now a block away, mm -hmm. but it's traditionally the Times Building, about thirty stories above the crowd. There is a pillar illuminated, a flagpole mm -hmm. uh, in lights, and at the top is a sphere uh, with, with 100, 200 bulbs in it. Mm -hmm. At the moment of midnight, just maybe three seconds before, the, bu the bulb starts to move just a touch, and then at the precise instant, it slides down, this illuminated bulb. And that noise, which one had thought is indescribably at the peak, 
even goes higher. That extra roar is the thing that knocks it over. <laughs> ben, how many years have you been reporting on uh, New Year's Eve in Times Square? Well, let's see. I've covered everything from eclipses in Brazil to uh, surrenders and uh, airlifts. But this one has gone on whatever the world events is going to be sure of. I'd say, I'm not sure, but it's at least 20 years. At least 20 at years. At least 20. I know I did the one in 1939, so that's 39, 59. It's 22 years. 22. Haven't, do any of them stand out above the others? There is a, uh, I won't say monotony, there is a similarity with one notable exception. In the war years, mm -hmm. the composition of the crowd suddenly became mostly military, understandably. Mm -hmm. and the one that I never will forget was the one in 1944. Not 45, but from 44 turning to 45, mm -hmm. as the Allied forces, and of course as the U.S. forces, felt that victory was in our grasp. Mm -hmm. D-Day was, was already eight months old, uh, it was plain to every observer that the uh, Nazis were crumbling. There was that sense of, now we've got it in our hands. Mm -hmm. That was the maddest, the wildest, the most uh, tremendous. Mm. I understand you also covered VJ Day in Times Square. Now, there have been rumors of a, of a big conference in Washington that day, and then the news of the armistice broke at 7 in the evening. And you broadcast for many hours after that as a crowd spontaneously gathered to celebrate in Times Square. Yes, let's get the chronology. The big one in, in New Year's Eve was before VJ. Yes, the uh -huh. sense of anticipation. Yeah, and this is and then August. Day, August, what was it? August 14, I think. Mm -hmm. This was realization. And this had added to it the fact that there had been a buildup for, for days, for two or three days after the two atom bombs and the mm -hmm. negotiations in Switzerland and so on. And through, some, some rumors. And rumors, plenty of rumors. Even, I think, there was a false one, as there was in World War II, World War I. World War I, uh -huh. So the crowd had started to gather that afternoon. Mo uh, the mobile unit was assigned. I went down with the mobile unit. My impression is it was broad daylight, five or six o'clock. Did you say seven? I, I think it was when the uh, word came well, from the White House that the armistice was... Uh, with daylight saving in August, there still would be daylight, so that's right. And that, that audience, uh, audience, that crowd was different from me. There's a frenetic, a frantic, uh, desperate feeling to the midnight thing because it's so quick. Mm -hmm. It's all built up into those last five minutes. This just continued. I never saw so many girls kissed by so many guys whom they didn't know and, and, and enjoying it. Uh, Marines, I remember, uh, were particularly, they landed and took over. Yeah. There were two Navy boys that climbed uh, one of the flagpoles. Uh, one of the lighting fixtures, about 25 feet high, most perilous thing, and shinnied up yeah. there and saluted the crowd. Yeah, great great moment. Mad moment. Everything in this world, Ben, seems to get bigger every year. Do you expect the crowd to be uh, at its biggest this year? No. The crowds at Times Square, although big, are trending down from about 700, 800,000 down to about a half a million or even 400,000. Mm -hmm. The tradition, I don't know why it built, whatever started the idea of coming to Times Square, but they used to flock in from all the city to there. Now people are getting a little more sophisticated. Maybe a little more TVs coming them ho keeping them home and radio, uh, family, whatever it is. There's a big crowd, but it's a very young crowd. These are kids. Well, Ben, does the feeling of a giant crowd like that give you any kind of a strange feeling? A very strange feeling. Uh, when you look at the crowd, you can't recognize faces. You just sense an impersonal mass. Mm -hmm. Many times as I've stood there, as the noise is building, the demonstration, I realize it's for nothing but meaningless expressions of joy, but suppose it would turn to political power. During the war, when Hitler and Mussolini were raging at their strongest, you sense the power of the mob, and you sense the thank thankfulness that we have never been subject to mob rule. The mob is an animal, and you see it as its fiercest, lashing its tail in a crowd like that. It's bigger than the sum of its parts, isn't it? It's, that's right, and it's, it's mindless. Mm -hmm. In a state of hypnosis. Ben, one last question. Do you ever have trouble getting through the crowds to the place where you're <laughs> supposed to be? Frequently. There are two reasons. Uh -huh. One, I never leave my family and friends in time. I'm always skinning in at the last minute. 
And then the crowd is building, and they say, hey, fella, happy new year, and grab me and yeah. try to make me a prisoner. So I have a torn coat or a button missing, but I make it. A few little mementos for right. over those 22 years. Good luck in getting there tonight, Ben, and we'll be listening in to you at midnight. Thank right. you for joining us. Thanks, Frank. You're on the monitor beacon. In just a moment, a complete news resume of this last week of 1961. And now, noted Washington columnist Drew Pearson. I have reported danger signals from various parts of the country of Cole's contagion. In my business, I can't afford colds. I have to meet a deadline every day. Infectious germs and mouth and throat can really swarm into action. Increase a cold's discomfort. Make the cold drag on. So fight cold's contagion with Listerine antiseptic. Because Listerine kills germs on contact by millions. WRC News on the Half Hour. Now speaking from the WRC Newsroom, here's Howard Streeter. Former United States Intelligence Chief Alan Dulles says that Fidel Castro's growing military strength helped set the timetable for last April's unsuccessful attempt to overthrow the communist dictator. On NBC's Meet the Press tonight, Dulles denied that the refugee invasion failed through lack of intelligence, and he said the United States never expected it would be followed by a popular uprising in Cuba. President Kennedy has exchanged New Year's greetings with Soviet Premier Khrushchev, with the president reminding the premier of their responsibility for strengthening peace in 1962. The message from Moscow acknowledged that progress toward peace depends on the state of Soviet-American relations. In East Germany, communist leader Walter Ulbricht called closing of the Berlin border a great victory in the fight for peace. Across the wall, West Berlin Mayor Willy Brandt assured his people they will remain free next year. In the Middle East, an attempt by Arab writers, supported by 60 army backers, to seize power in Lebanon was put down in brief battles today in Beirut and in a mountain area. Five persons were killed. The chief of the right-wing Popular Socialist Party and 50 others were arrested. Reports reaching Baghdad say Kurdish tribesmen in northern Iraq have renewed their rebellion against Iraq Premier Qassam's government. Qassam called the fresh fighting suspicious in view of the tense situation over its claims to the oil-rich sheikdom of Kuwait. Howard Streeter, WRC News. You have never really tasted seafood until you dine at O'Donnell's Deep Sea Grill. And in these final hours of 1961, you're here on the Monitor Beacon. Let's pause now for a look at some of the most important events of the last week of 1961, particularly those events which will continue to occupy the world's attention in the new year. The last days of 1961 have not been cheerful ones. The United Nations staggered under their impact. The leaders of the Western world spent the last days of the year worrying about how to prevent many small wars from growing into big ones. In the Congo, the fighting stopped temporarily while Katanga's recalcitrant President Chombe backed and filled on his agreement to submit to the authority of the central Congolese government. Chombe did take the first step the agreement calls for, sending a few Katanga legislators to sit with the central parliament in Leopoldville. But Chombe's cabinet refused to ratify the agreement, and this gives him an excuse not to honor it if he chooses. The noise of another small war, India's attack on Goa, reverberated in the corridors of the UN during the week. 
Because the UN could not stop the attack, some observers predicted the world organization would collapse like the old League of Nations. Adverse world reaction caused Indian Prime Minister Nehru to explain himself at a news conference during the week. Nehru said he knew he would probably be called a hypocrite, but his New Year message to the world was, work for peace. In southeast of India, Indonesia's Sukarno would like to take over West New Guinea from the Dutch. Immediately after India's attack on Goa, Sukarno threatened to use force to take over New Guinea. But during this past week, the first tentative steps were taken toward negotiating Sukarno's demands. In Laos, the carefully arranged and long-awaited conference of the three princes fell apart in less than an hour on Wednesday. They were to have set up a coalition government of communist, neutralist, and pro-Westerners, designed to hold the country against communist domination, or at least make it neutral. The communists badly want Laos, and the West wants just as badly for them not to have it. There was, however, one potentially bright spot during the past week. The world heard from General de Gaulle and other French sources that the eight-year-old Algerian war might end soon. Great strides reportedly were taken recently in negotiations with the Algerian rebel government. During the past week, de Gaulle announced plans to bring home much of the French army from Algeria. Relieved of the drain of the Algerian war, France in 1962 will be stronger and a more effective partner in NATO. And here at home, the last week of the old year was unusually quiet. The biggest news was the president's preparation of his major messages to the new Congress beginning next month. The president fixed on a balanced budget of $92 billion for the new fiscal year, $3 billion more than for this year. Mr. Kennedy's legislative program is expected to involve proposals for social reform, which he made during 1961, and Congress is reported to be in no mood for voting much social reform. Well, those are some of the more important events of the last week of 1961, which, as they continue to develop, will help shape our lives during small local line have made a somewhat unusual complaint to the railroad management. Normally, the 7.30 train runs from 15 to 30 minutes late, and the passengers have come to make due allowance for this. But one recent morning, the train was on time, and about half the regular passengers missed it. Well, the passengers have petitioned the railroad not to have the train run on time again. It isn't fair. And here's an unusual announcement. Monitor is partly pre-recorded. UCLA meets Minnesota in the Rose Bowl tomorrow on NBC. Frank McGee, hosting an excerpt of the New Year's Eve 1961 broadcast of NBC Monitor, a service that, by the way, had a real influence on NPR's All Things Considered. In fact, Monitor was still on the air when that brilliant NPR news magazine premiered in 1971. Monitor left the air for good in January of 1975. This is The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Mike Kidd and Barnaby Bristol are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University, celebrating 60 years in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. In 1961, 
You could still hear the greatest radio western series of all time, but it had left the air by the time WAMU began that autumn. We're about to hear the last episode ever broadcast, a rerun from 1956, but with some spots promoting other programs you would have heard in 1961. And it seems appropriate at such a moment to quote our big broadcast founder, John Hickman. In fact, let's hear him say it. Looking back, it seems strange that it took from 1926, when network radio began, to 1952, a total of 26 years, for someone to offer an adult portrayal of the American West. How right he was, and what great taste he had. He loved this series, and now here's that final episode. Broadcast over CBS on June 18, 1961, it's a story called Letter of the Law from Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. regular hours, you know. Then what were you doing in the long branch at 2 o'clock this morning? <laughs> well, sometimes it's a regular 24 hours, like you. Well, at least I make good money at it. Kitty, would you really like to see me settle down and run a saloon? You might get to like it. All right, I'll do it. When? <laughs> when I'm about 50. I thought so. Good morning, Miss Kitty. Oh, hello, Chester. Yes, sir. Uh, Miss Dillon, here's a letter for you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, the envelope says it's from Judge Rambo over in Wichita. Uh-huh. Anything important? Yeah, court order for eviction. Seems Brandon Teak didn't file legally on his land over by Wagon Mound. Did you say Brandon Teak? Yeah. Well, where did you know him, Kitty? Oh, everybody knew him. Round Abilene. Yeah, he had a pretty bad reputation then. Doesn't he still? No, I haven't seen him for some time, Kitty, but he's married and he's trying to prove up some land. Well, I don't envy you trying to put him off it. Brandon Teak never shoved very easy that I recall. Well, Miss Dillon, do you have to evict him off? Maybe the judge made a mistake or something. No, I'm no admirer of Judge Rambo, but he knows his law. Uh, we'll ride out there this afternoon, Chester. Be sure your gun's loaded, Matt. Maybe I won't need it, Kitty. You want to bet? No. No, I guess not. Uh, 
Junior, you ask me, Teeks went and built himself a mighty nice place out here. Yeah, it's not fun. What brings you out this way? Well, here, you, uh, you might as well read it yourself. What's this? Court order. Immediate ev- eviction. Mm-hmm. Well, wh- what's this all about, Marshal? That's just what it says. Well, I got my deed to this place. Yeah, but you failed to register it at the land office. Well, now, nobody told me about that. I'm sorry, Tick. You're going to be a whole lot sorrier. You try to put me off this land, Marshal. Brandon, who are you talking you, to? You stay inside, sir. It ain't nothing. And it won't hurt if I come out. Uh, this is my wife, Marshal Dillon and Chester Proudfoot. How you doing, Miss? I do, ma'am. Marshal? You trouble, Brandon? They say we got no legal right to this place, sir. I didn't register the deed or some fool thing. No. Now, don't you worry. Ain't nobody going to move us off, law or no law. That's a court order. I ain't wore a gun since I got married, Marshal, but I can sure go put one on. Brandon. Now, Sarah, you... You can't forget your promise. Especially now you can't. That's all the more reason for fighting, Sarah. We're going to have a child, Marshal. Most any day now. Oh. And we ain't moving. We ain't starting over. If we have to, we can do it. I'd rather die than see you go to fighting again, Brandon. Now, you think on it. She sure don't make it easy on me, Marshal. What are you going to do, Take? Well, it's a hard thing for a man like me to swallow, but I can't go against her. And I ain't putting on my gun. Well, why don't you go in and tell her that? And... When will I tell her we got to get off the place? There's no hurry. Now, what about that immediate eviction? I'll be responsible for that. I guess I ought to be grateful to you. No, no. No, take not to me. Goodbye. Goodbye, Marshal. Chester Hill. Bye, Teak. My dean for a minute there, I thought he was going to make trouble, sure. Yeah. When are you going to put him off, Mr. Dillon? I'm going over to Wichita, Chester. I'll find out there. Blue Monday tomorrow? Not at all. Tomorrow on Arthur Godfrey time, for instance, you can enjoy quips from the redhead himself, plus the fine singing of Richard Hayes and the Mary Mayo Singers with Dick Hyman in the orchestra. Genial Gary Moore will be joshing with his sidekick, Derward Kirby, on the Gary Moore radio show. Art Linkletter's house party will play host to more merriment. And Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney will regale you with grand songs grandly sung. Listen to a lineup like that five mornings a week. And you'll never have a Blue Monday or any other work day again.
about, Judge. Marshal Dillon, what are you doing in Wichita? I came to see you. That's so. How'd you know I was in here? Well, uh, that's where I found you last time, Judge. Oh. I would drink. No, thanks. It's about that court order you sent me. Which court order, Marshal? To evict Brandon Teak off his land near Wagonland. Oh, that, yeah. I remember. What's the trouble? Is he putting up a fight now? No, he isn't. Well, he sure must have changed. I remember Teak around here. He was a wild one. He's married now, Judge. They're expecting a child any day. A child? I told them that they could take their time about moving. Take their time? That order was to evict them at once, Marshal. I know that. Marshal Dillon, there is no room for sentiment in the law. What's right is right. What's legal is legal. Dick's been on that land over a year, Judge. How come this business about failing to register his deed just came up? It was only recently brought to my attention. And who brought it to your attention? Lee Sprague. Not that it makes any difference. Lee Sprague owns a lot of land around Wagon Mound. And he's filed on this piece, too. There's nothing irregular about it, Marshal, if that's what you're thinking. Legally, I'm sure everything's correct, Judge. But? But I just guess it isn't my kind of law, that's all. There's only one kind of law. The way you see it, maybe. You can't argue with facts, Marshal. Now stop being a sentimental fool. Go do your duty. Look, Judge, Brandon takes a changed man. He's done more than prove up that land. He's proved himself up, too. Homestead Act, 1862, paragraph 12, after one year of the deed to such land is not duly recorded at the near... Never mind, land. Judge. I know how it reads. And start acting like it. I can hold even the U.S. Marshal in contempt of court, you know. Yeah, sure, I know. You've got a lot of power, Judge. There's just one thing wrong. What's that? You never learned how to use it. I found out. It's, uh... about Brandon Teak. Something wrong? No, not legally. Judge Rambo made that pretty clear. You want to tell me what's bothering you, Marshal? Yeah, sure. I think Brandon Teak deserves that land more than you do. Marshal, I'm in the land and cattle business. I'm making out mighty well. No man can accuse me of ever doing anything illegal or dishonest. But everybody knows I practice sharp. I'll go on practicing sharp, too. Even against a man like Teak who's hung up his gun and steeled down and tried to make a life for him and his family? What do you mean, his family? 
Well, there's a child coming any day now. And he's better off in town, Marshal. What? My wife stayed in the country. That's why I lost her. Well, looks to me like I'm doing Teak a favor. You've got an awful easy conscience, Sprague. Well, there's no use arguing, Marshal. You got your order, now you go put them off. No, Sprague, I'm not going to do it. What? I couldn't hold my head up if I had any part of the kind of law you and Judge Rambo want. You mean that? Yeah, I mean that. Boy, I ain't going to let you stand in my way, Marshal. You're in for trouble. Brandon Teak and his missus both talking to that fella yonder, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, uh, you recognize him, Chester? No, sir, I don't. He's a stranger to me. I'm saying you just ain't got no right. Looks like they're all head up over something, don't it? Yeah. Miss Teak ought to be standing out in the heat of the day that way. You let Marshal Dillon settle this, Haley. Got nothing to do with it no more. That's the trouble here, Tick. I'll do, Mike. You told me there was no hurry about our leaving, Marshal. Now, wait a minute. Where'd you get that badge, mister? Who are you? I'm Jim Haley Marshal, deputy sheriff from Wichita. Wichita? How'd you get here? Well, I took the train to Dodge, and then I rented me a horse. Answer me, Haley. Judge Rambo sent me. I guess he felt the law needed a little enforcing down this way. He's got a court order, Marshal, just like the one you had. Plum legal. I want you people to pack up. Be out of here by tomorrow. Just a minute, Haley. I can take care of them, Marshal. No, Brandon, there'll be no fight. Now, Sarah, I... You can... ain't gonna do nothing except move, Teak. And right now... No. Let go, Mar- no! Here, Haley. Pick up his gun, Chester. Yes, sir. She hurt, Teak. I'll be all right. She only grabbed his arm. He's gone and hurt her, Marshal, flinging her off like that. Chester. Yes, sir. Jump on your horse and ride for Dodge. Tell Doc to get out here. Fast. Never come out of that house, Miss Dillon. It's been a long time, hasn't it? She shouldn't have grabbed me, but I didn't mean to hurt her. You just keep quiet, Haley. Nobody wants to hear from you. Miss Dillon, there's Doc. Yeah. He's been over two hours. He don't look none too happy, does he? Well, Doc. The baby's dead, Matt. Oh, no. It's too bad. I didn't do it. I only pushed her. I told you to shut up, Haley. There was a chance of saving the baby. It's her I've been working on. She's going to be all right now, man. Well, good for that anyway, Doc. Uh, Doc, tell you, Marshal. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear it, Teak. I'm sorry, too. But you can't blame me for it. Haley, 
I just now promised my wife I wouldn't kill you. Now, don't make me break it. Come on, Haley. I'm going to take you in the Dodge with me. Now, look here. Ain't you forgetting I'm a lawman, too, Mark? I'd like to forget it. It doesn't make me very proud of being one. I come here to do a job, and I'm going to do it. As soon as his wife can be moved, of course. Now, this is all over. There's no reason for waiting longer. I promised her I wouldn't kill you now, Haley, but you come back here, I promise you I will. A man can take only so much. I'll be back. No, you won't. I'm going to throw you in jail for a while. What? Take as soon as your wife's better, you come and see me. I don't know what I can do, but things aren't going on this way. That's what he told me. There's a neighbor woman staying with his wife. Uh, not that she really needs anybody now. Oh, well, I'm proud to hear that. Well, it's only been a week, but she's a strong woman. Uh, oh, here we are. Hmm? Oh, well, he did come in. Hello, Doc. Chester. Okay. Hmm? How's the patient? Oh, pretty good, Doc. She's being awful brave about it. But I know how she feels. Only time will cure that. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, Teak, uh, Mr. Jones in the office. He wanted you to go right on in when you got here. Okay. Uh, hello, Teak. Come on in. You know Lee Sprague, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I know him. Hello, Teak. Sprague and I were over at the land office this morning. I think we got everything straightened out. What do you mean? Here, take a look at this. What is it? It's a deed to the land you're on, Teak. This time it's legally registered. Sure, I can see that. And it's registered in your name. That's right. Did you help him with this, Marshal? I wanted to be sure that there weren't any loopholes. And there aren't any, huh? No. You know, if it wasn't for my wife, you people would have to shoot me off that place. But I warned her I can only stand so much. You send Jim Haley out there, I'll kill him on sight. I sent Haley back to Wichita this morning. Teak, I want to tell you something. Ain't you said enough, Sprague? No. Now listen. I'm a greedy man, Teak, and I'll take anything I can get. Legally. But Marshal Dillon here's been talking pretty hard to me lately. Sure. Sure, I've been listening to him, too. Well, it ain't Haley you ought to blame, Teak. It's me. What? I guess I'd have gone right on, and I could have. So I heard about your baby. Why should that matter to you? I lost my son, T. I lost my wife, too. Taking my land, gonna help you? You tell him, Marshal. Take, he's not taking your land. Now, that deed's in his name, ain't it? Didn't you go along to be sure he didn't make any mistake? There are no mistakes this time. Sprague can deed that land to anybody he wants to now. All clear. Well, what about it? It's yours, Tick. You... You mean... You're giving it to me? I'm not giving it to you. It's yours anyway. I'll... I'll tell Sarah... Now, tell her she was right all along. That's right, she was. But well, what about you, Marshal? Ain't there going to be trouble? You're jailing a deputy sheriff? Well, as soon as he gets back to Wichita, there'll be trouble. 
<laughs> Don't you worry about that. I always wanted to see California anyway. Remember how relieved you were when you heard there was at last a vaccine to stamp out polio? Remember the early doubts and fears that it hadn't really been perfected? Those days are behind us. Areas where the Salk vaccine has been taken by substantial numbers of children and adults under 40 have shown remarkable results. But studies made last year show that the most susceptible group have been neglecting themselves. Almost 41 million adults under 40 years of age have not taken as much as one polio shot. Do you doubt that this is important? If so, please note carefully that after two years of rewarding statistics, in 1958, the incidence of polio started to climb again. The vaccine won't work on people who don't take it. At least three shots, spaced as your doctor or clinic recommends, are vital for maximum protection from polio. The CBS Radio Network and its affiliated stations join the United States Department of Health in urging, get your polio shots. Get them starting now. and directed in Hollywood by Norman MacDonald stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, Gene Bates, John Daner, Barney Phillips, and Harry Bartell. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. This broadcast concludes the current Gunsmoke series. Next week at this time... CBS Radio Network and its affiliated stations will welcome back the distinguished dramatic favorite, Suspense. The premiere of this new suspense cycle will be Alan Sloan's gripping original play, Call Me at Half Pack. Be with us next Sunday at this same time for the return to these stations of Suspense. This is George Walsh speaking. Imagine that, a public service announcement urging people to get vaccinated. It aired in the last week of spring in 1961 in Letter of the Law, the very last radio broadcast of Gunsmoke. And that promo for Arthur Godfrey time mentioned Dick Hyman, who went on to be honored as an NEA jazz master in 2017 and who's still prospering at age 94. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, and Mike Kidd and Barnaby Bristol are the audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org. And please visit our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast. We're the longest-running show in the 60 years of WAMU, and we're celebrating tonight with programs from 1961 and with comments and remembrances listeners have sent us this month. Let's listen to a few of them. Hi, my name is Connie Scruggs. I have been listening to the big broadcast since Ed Walker. My family knows not to call me on Sunday night at 7 o'clock on. I am an elderly person, so I know all the radio shows. I had listened to them when I was a child. I think Maury Horowitz has done 
just a fantastic job. And I really appreciate some of the interviews he's done recently, especially with the gentleman whose father had been in radio. And keep up the good job, the big broadcast, and all the wonderful memories of the old shows. Hello, this is Joe Sorensen in Albuquerque, New Mexico. My wife, Ellen, and I have been listening to the big broadcast consistently for about one year and a half. I have heard about the program Ed Walker and the big broadcast for many, many, many years. What has happened some time ago, maybe around two years ago or so, there was a radio station Saturday and Sunday night that was broadcasting old-time radio, but after 20 years, they dropped it. And so we were both frustrated, and we looked around on the Internet, and there, of course, was the big broadcast. So we have made it our home on Sunday night, and also if we miss any part of it, it's their audio on demand. So congratulations. Happy birthday, WAMU. And thank you for the big broadcast, which my wife and I enjoy very, very much. Hello, I am Robert Flood, and this is to all the broadcasting uh, professionals at WAMU. I'm a native Washingtonian born visually impaired back in 1955. I grew up on the type of radio we all love, just as it was fading. So at the age of nine, after spending my mornings with Harden and Weaver and afternoon with the Joy Boys, I discovered WAMU-FM featured daily old-time radio programs in the evening. That is when I knew I had found my radio home. I did attend AU in the mid-1970s, spending most of my time at the radio station, learning a lot. I engineered for Diane Rehm, worked for Susan Harmon, and I met John Hickman. John and I shared two very important things. One, we had a love of old-time radio. And we have a love of WAMU-FM, the station that really is the heart of Washington. Thank you. Wow. A WAMU alumnus for whom these old-time radio shows were a lifeline, as they were for our own Ed Walker, who was blind from birth. So nice to hear all those memories and those compliments. Thank you very much. We have some written comments, too. Here's one from Mr. H. Vance Johnson. I listened to many of the old-time radio shows as a child. When I moved to Washington, I began listening to John Hickman in the late 60s. My dad would visit us in D.C., and we'd always listen together on Sunday nights. I've been a regular listener since then. My wife and I listen every Sunday night. And thanks to Mr. and Mrs. Bunitsky of Frederick, Maryland. Mr. Bunitsky wrote, We've been listening to the big broadcast since we started dating. My wife has been listening since she was a child in the John Hickman years, and she introduced me when we first met. It's still the best part of our weekends. We'll be celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary next month. Well, happy anniversary. And this came from James Gallagher of Stafford, Virginia. My dad started listening in 1964 with my grandfather. I listened with him through the 90s. Now, me and my kiddos listen every Sunday. Four generations of memories. Thank you. Well, we're so grateful to all of you who shared your memories and your kind words. 
We weren't fishing for compliments. We just wanted to hear from you about the continuity of WAMU over 60 years and of the place the big broadcast holds in our cultural life. Our gratitude goes to everyone who sent us a message. Thank you so much. 1961 was an upside-down year, literally. The numbers 1961 read the same when you turn them upside down. As Mad Magazine reminded us back then, on a cover you can see on our Facebook page, it was the first upside-down year since 1881 and the last until 6009. The big broadcast might not last till then, although our 57 years is a good start. Even Dragnet only lasted eight years on radio, and for the last year and a half of that time, played only reruns. We're about to hear the last original script the series produced, an episode called, appropriately enough, The Big Close. It comes from September 20th, 1955, NBC and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. You get a call telling you that the body of a man has been found in the motel room. There's no lead to his true identity. Your job? Check it out. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, July 19th. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Warman. My name's Friday. I was on my way back to the main jail, and it was 5.27 p.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Hi, how'd it go? He's willing to make a statement. He copped the whole thing. That's going to save us some time. Yeah. Could have saved a lot more if he'd gone with us last week, though. Yeah. What do you got? Paperwork. Want to give me a hand? Yeah. Here. Okay. How's the family? Mm, pretty good. Faye thinks she's got appendicitis. Hmm? Faye thinks she has appendicitis. Woke me up at 2.30 this morning. Got a pain in her side. Sure it was appendicitis. Yeah. I told her to call a doctor. No, she didn't think it was that bad. Mm. Not to call a doctor. Just enough to keep me awake worrying about it. Mm. This morning the whole thing's gone, though. No trouble. Says it's probably heartburn. Why don't you give her a couple of your Pepto pals? Oh, Joe, that's very funny. Mm-hmm. Funny. Homicide Friday. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. What's that? What's that address? All right, we'll be right out. No, no, not anything. Right. Goodbye. Work? Work. Made at a motel out on Sepulveda. Found a body in one of the cabins. Yeah. Thinks it's a suicide. I 
Frank and I left the office and drove out to the address. It was a modern motel set back from the highway. There were 14 cabins surrounding a swimming pool on the lot. We met with a woman who had placed the call and the owner of the place. Right over there, number eight. Mm. Anything been touched in the room? No, sir. As soon as I saw him, I knew what had happened. I locked the door and called you. Right. What's his name? Registered as Tom Rustad in Phoenix. How long has he been here? About ten days. I'd have to check the card to be sure. Be alone? Mm-hmm. Here, I got the key. Go ahead. Thank you. Bye. You touched the body at all? No, I should say not. Mm-hmm. I've worked around motels for a long time, yet and so nothing bothers me. Tell you, though, this almost did, like this scared me half to death. Yes, ma'am. Better call the lab, ask him to come out of Yeah. Be all right if I use the phone in the office? Well, sure, you go right ahead. It's on the desk, back of the counter. Thanks. Thing like this, it, it isn't going to do the place any good, I... Hope it can be played down in the paper. Yes, sir. This is the first kind of trouble we've had. Suicide. Sure isn't going to help. I wish there was some way to change it. Well, there is, but that wouldn't help much either. What do you mean? He's dead, isn't he? Yeah, but he had help. Six oh three p.m. The crew from the crime lab arrived and started their investigation. Apparently, the victim had been killed with a small caliber gun. However, a search of the room failed to turn it up. The coroner's office was notified they came out to check the body and go through his effects. 6.18 p.m., Frank and I talked with the motel owner in his cabin. Now, here's the registration card. You can see there where he signed it. Mm-hmm. Are you driving a car, do you know? Oh, I never saw one. Well, how'd he get here? You mean when he checked in? Yeah. By cab. Uh, tell you why he was in town? No, he never mentioned it. Did he work? I don't know. When he checked in, did he say how long he'd be staying? No, he said it might be a week, ten days. How about visitors? Do you have any? I didn't see him. What about phone calls? Yeah, he made some. Do you have a record of them? No. Usually we do. All the calls go through the board, but he used the phone booth outside. Oh, see. A couple times I was out by the pool at night, you know. Sure. I'd be out there and I'd see him in the booth. A couple of times he talked for quite a while. But you haven't got any idea who he was calling? No. Dime called, though. What's that? Cost him a dime. I heard the bell ring when he dropped the money. Well, they all do. You get any mail? No. The paper is room in advance? Yeah, the first time he gave me the money for a week. And just a few days ago, he paid for another week. How'd he pay it? What do you mean? Well, by check or cash. Oh, cash. What size bills do you remember? I never saw him use anything smaller than a 50. Mm-hmm. Sure seemed to have a lot of them. Just maybe a couple thousand dollars. Did he always carry that kind of money with him? Well, I wouldn't know about that. Mm-hmm. I guess he must have kept something smaller, though. Isn't everybody can change a 50? Not everybody. You gonna let his people know? What's that? We must have some people over in Phoenix that should know about him being dead. Yeah. Sure don't feel it's my place to tell him. No, sir, we'll take care of it. Okay. That'll be a shock to him, a guy his age. Probably got a wife and family not gonna do him any good. Well, we're supposed to leave, isn't it? Hmm? Didn't do much for him. <laughs> place, the crime lab found the room had been ransacked. Although none of the possessions of the victim had been taken, there was no money in the room and no personal identification could be found. The place was gone over for fingerprints. Several clean substances, but they belonged to the dead man. No other usable physical evidence was recovered. The coroner's office checked through the victim's luggage. 
In one of the suitcases, they found an unstamped letter addressed to a June Russell in Reno, Nevada. Its contents explained that the victim expected to be in that scene at the end of the month. There was no way of establishing a relationship between the two people. The coroner sealed the motel room, and Frank and I returned to the office. We sent a radiogram to the authorities in Phoenix asking for all information on Tom Rustad. The following morning, Wednesday, June 20th, we got their answer. There it is, Joe. Phoenix? Yeah, take a look. Yeah, boy. It's going to make it rougher. Yeah. I never heard of him. In the hope of getting an identification of the victim, his fingerprint classification and description was sent to George Burton up at CII Sacramento, FBI headquarters in Washington, and to the police departments in the seven western states. A close check of his clothing revealed that Tom Rustad's suits were tailor-made and had been made in Reno. We contacted the authorities there and asked them to check on the tailor shops in the area. We also asked that they check out the woman Rustad had written to. While we waited for the answer, we contacted the cab company that had serviced the area around the motel. We asked them to go over their waybills and report all trips from the motel and all trips to the address. Two hours later, we got the list and started to check out the drivers. Sure, I remember the guy. A couple more like him, I could buy my own cab company. What do you mean? Well, he's a big tipper. Never had anything less than a half a saw buck. Mm-hmm. Down at the stand, got to be a real battle. Who's going to pick them up? You know, the loop? Yeah. Where do you usually take them? Well, different places, restaurants, shows, different places. Did he ever tell you what he was doing in town? Well, we'd talk, you know, long drive downtown, you'd kind of dull. A couple of times he rode in the front seat with me. Guess maybe the company wouldn't like it, but that's the way he wanted it. Mm-hmm. What'd you talk about? Weather, fishing, lots of things. Yeah. Mostly about girls, though. He thought he was quite a ladies' man. The way he dressed, all that money he should have been. Ever see any of his friends? Listen, how come you're asking all these questions? This police matter. Uh, I knew that when I got the word from the front office. They told me to ride with you all the way. Well, what's the beef? You have to roost that for something? Investigation. Uh-huh. Now, what about his friends? Well, she wouldn't want him to find out, but the whole deal. Probably wouldn't call me anymore. What's that? My ship. Who? I don't know her last name. Some bimbo roost that now. Ever meet her? Not swam. What's that mean? Well, she was in a cab. You know, I'd pick him up here, drive over to her place, and take the two of them down to a restaurant. Mm-hmm. So, a real beauty was a tall, blonde, gorgeous. Bruce Dad was pretty friendly with her, was he? Yeah, I guess so. We well, talked, he liked her a lot. You got her address? Yeah, I suppose. Huh? Well, you guys roused it's gonna lead right back to me. Cause a lot of trouble. Tell you he's a funny guy. Talk about a lot of things, but you don't like to have you ask questions, especially about him. Yeah. Got real touchy when I talk about where he was from, what he did for a living. Yeah. That's why it's important you don't get in any trouble with him. I can use those tips. Well, don't count on them anymore. Huh? They won't be coming. We got the address of the woman the driver knew as Marcia. We called the office to check on the wires we'd sent. There'd been no answer to any of them. 1.30 p.m., we drove over to see the woman. The place was a new apartment building on Wilshire Boulevard. On the mailbox, we found the name Marcia Lovequist and the information that she occupied apartment 14. We went up and rang the bell. Well, it doesn't look like she's home. Yeah. Let's check with the manager. All right. Sure pretty cool, isn't it, Joe? Yeah. You know, you ought to get a place out here. It'd be great for you. It would, huh? Sure. Nice apartment, pool, get some sun. Yeah, I got a lot of time for that. Well, once in a while, it wouldn't cost so much. Mm-hmm. Be nice. Me and Faith come over and see you and bring the kids. You bet. Well, you wouldn't want to be a hog about the pool, would you? Not me, Frank. You feel that way, just forget the whole thing? Mm, that's what I was planning. You just forget. There's the manager. Can I help you? 
wonder if he could tell us where he can find Miss Lovequist. Martha? Yes, that's right. Oh, saw a few minutes ago. Oh, yes, there she is over by the pool. She with the straw hat. Oh, yeah. Thanks very much. Sure. Thank you, ma'am. Miss Lovequist? Yes? The police officer would like to ask you a few questions. Policeman? I don't know what I could tell you, but go ahead. Sorry if we sit down? Sure. Pull up a couple of stools. Thank you. Thank you. I'll get them. Thank you. This is Frank Smith. My name's Friday. How do you do? That's fine. Now, what do you want to see me about? You know a man named Roosted? Yeah, why? What can you tell us about him? In trouble? No, we're just checking. Oh. Well, what do you want to know? You know where he's from? Me at hometown? That's right. Someplace up north. I don't think he ever said. How'd you happen to meet him? Cocktail party, hotel downtown. There was a convention. My agent got me a job as a host. Mm-hmm. I'm a model to do some work in TV. I can get a little rock to take what you can get. Yeah. Tom was there, and we got to talking. Went out to dinner. So I'm quite a bit after that. Did he tell you what he did for a living? No, I don't think so. That was a nice thing. Talked like one. What about this convention? Hmm? You know what it was for? Oh, dentist. But he didn't have anything to do with that. He was just there. Oh. Uh-huh. Told me he was sitting at the bar, and one of the guys asked him to come up and have a cup of drinks. That's all. He wasn't a dentist, though. I see. Do you have any friends here in town, would you know? Yeah, I don't. Listen, why don't you ask him? He'd go along with you. Nice guy. He'd be able to answer these questions a lot better than me. Well, we're checking everybody who knew him. Oh, I see. No, nice guy. Had a lot of fun. Where'd you see him last, miss? Day before yesterday. We had dinner. Took a drive. Came by for a nightcap, and then he called a cab and went home. Did you hear from him yesterday? No. Didn't really expect to. Why? Well, you see, we had kind of a fight. Nothing serious. I didn't figure I'd hear from him until maybe today, you know. We both got over the mad. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what the argument was about? Well, it came to you, I'd rather not. It's pretty important that we know. Well, I guess it can't do any harm. He was just getting too serious, that's all. Ma'am? Yeah. Too serious. I told him I had to go out of town on a modeling job. Santa Barbara would be gone a couple of days, and he got real mad. They didn't want me running around like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Real possessive. I told him he didn't have any right to tell me what to do, that we weren't married, you know? Yeah. Well, Matt got loud. Him telling me I wasn't going to Santa Barbara and me saying he couldn't stop me. He finally called the camp and went home. What time was that? Oh, I guess about 3.30. Might have been 4, no later. All right, thank you very much. If you should think of anything else, we'd appreciate a call. Sure. I'll leave you one of our cards. Mm-hmm. Ask for either one of you? Yes, ma'am. Hey, I'll tell you who you ought to talk to. Who's that? We ought to see him anyway. I haven't heard anything, but... Tom might have gone over there. Who? This photographer I was going to Santa Barbara with. Tom might have gone over to see him. Can you give us his address? Yeah, I've got it upstairs. Did Roosted know this photographer? Well, they'd never met. He knew about him, though. Yeah. That's why I might be able to tell you something. Ma'am? Well, Tom thought there was something between us, this other fellow and me. Of course, I told him it was silly. It didn't make any difference, though. Real jealous, possessive. Uh-huh. Said him and the other fellow were going to tangle someday. I hope not. Why? I know the other guy. Yeah. He'd kill Tom. We got the name and address of the photographer, and then we drove back to the city hall. We made a check through R&I, but we found no record on him. 3.06 p.m. Well, looks like we might have a lead. Yeah, hope it turns out, don't you? Mm-hmm. Homicide Friday. Yeah. Yeah, Jack. No, we've been waiting for it. Can you give it to me on the phone? We'll pick up the copy later. Okay, go ahead. Mm-hmm. What? How do you spell that? 
O S S E L L E. Yeah. All right. As soon as it comes in. Yeah, we'd appreciate a call on it. Right. Okay. Jack Ricketts down in communications. Yeah? Got a teletype from Reno. About Ruth, then? Yeah. They got a record on him. Real name's Thomas Roselle. That's the name on the letter. Yeah, they ran it down. Well, they got him. Been arrested for bunco, grand theft money, forgery. Haven't been able to make any of them stick. Mm-hmm. From what they say, a couple of months ago, he went into a new line. They figure that's what he's pitching now. What's that? Narcotics. Mm. What about this Roselle woman? He assisted? No, his wife. Huh? Married, got three kids. Her up there, and this Marshall woman here, and he's playing a real line. Yeah. They come up with anything more? Possible motive, maybe. Yeah. When Roselle left town, they got a rumble he was coming down here on business. Uh-huh. Had 12 ounces of heroin to peddle. a call to Narcotics Division and talked to Captain Walter. He told us they didn't have anything on Roselle, but they'd heard about a new supply of high-grade heroin being moved into town. We told him what we'd found, and then we drove out to talk to the photographer the victim's girlfriend had mentioned. Well, I'm sorry, fellas. I haven't got any idea what you're talking about. Have you seen Tom Roostad or Roselle? Sure, I didn't say I hadn't. But I didn't have anything to do with killing him. How'd you know he was dead? It's all over the afternoon papers. Don't you boys read your own publicity? When did you see him? Roostad? Yeah. Right before last. Monday? Yeah, I guess so. Really, Tuesday morning. What time? Oh, about 4.15. Yeah, that's it. 4.15, I remember, because he woke me up. I looked at the clock. Mm, what do you want? Oh, he had some wild idea. There was something going between me and Marcia. Was it? Well, I don't see if there's any of your business, but it doesn't matter to me, so I'll tell you. No, that wasn't. Mm-hmm. She's a model. I'm a photographer. She worked for me. I paid her 25 bucks an hour. That's all I was. Yeah. I ain't going to tell you it wouldn't have been nice, but it just didn't happen. I don't believe in romance around the office. Doesn't do anything but cause trouble. Yeah. What happened when Roostad came in? Oh, made a lot of accusations. I told him they weren't true. Said he had a filthy mind. Told him to get out. Did he go? No, I tried a little muscle. I belted him a couple of times, and that ended it. Mm-hmm. Poured him a drink to show him there weren't any hard feelings. A couple more. Yeah. Picked it around a while, and then he left. What did you talk about? Look, am I a suspect? Is that we on my back? We're talking to everybody who knew him. When you cross my name off the list, I belted him, that's all. I didn't shoot him. All right. Did he call a cab from here when he left? No, I was going to, and he decided to walk. Did you see him leave? Certainly. I locked the door after. Oh. Watched him walk outside from the window there. Must have changed his mind about the cab, though. What? Cab. Must have changed his mind. I thought he said he didn't take one. I said he didn't call one. The cruiser picked him up, they drove off. You didn't get the number of the cab, did you? Look, a guy woke me up at 4 o'clock in the morning, came in here, wanted to start a beef. I finally got rid of him. I'm a 9 to 6 boy. I haven't got time to stand around windows and get cab numbers for you cops. I went back to sleep. All right, and after anything comes up, give us a call, will you? Yeah, sure. Take this card, will you? Mm-hmm. Oh, look, I'm sorry if I sounded off, just that I don't want to get mixed up in it. You can understand that, can't you? Sure. No hard feelings, eh? No. I'll be honest with you, I didn't like Roostad. I didn't like him an inch, but I didn't hate him. I don't have to kill him. Somebody did. We contacted the cab company again and asked them to check the waybills from Nestler's address. They came up with one trip on Tuesday morning. The dispatcher gave us the driver's name and told us where we could find him. Yeah, I remember the guy. Looked like he had a beef with somebody, you know, real cut up. Mm-hmm. Where'd you take him? I think, uh, it was a hotel downtown. Remember the name? I dropped him off at the corner of Margot. He went into a hotel there. 
see you now. The Ruin Arms, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, that's the place. All right, thanks a lot. I'm glad to help out. Say, this fellow, he the same one who was killed yesterday? That's right. Well, I sure seen a lot of him. Newspapers, television, a lot of him. Huh. Always works that way, don't it? What do you mean? After you're dead, you're famous. Mm-hmm. When it's too late to enjoy it. <laughs> Frank and I drove down to the Roland Arms Hotel. We talked with a clerk who had been on duty Tuesday morning. He remembered a man answering the victim's description and told us he'd inquired about a guest named Wallace Alney. Because of Ruth's dad's insistence, the clerk had put through a call to Alney, and the guest said to let the victim come upstairs. He went on to say that about 30 minutes later, both men had left the hotel together. 9.40 p.m., we went up to Wallace Alney's room. Here it is, John. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah? Wallace Holly? Strike? Right. Police officer, I'd like to talk to you. Sure, come on in. This is Frank Smith. My name's Friday. Hi. How are you doing? That's all right. Like a drink? I'm just going to fix myself one. No, thanks. Always like a drink before dinner. It sharpens up the old appetite. Yeah. Mind if we look around? No, go ahead. Do it for anything special? I might be able to help. No, it's all right. All right, text positive. Well, maybe you better tell me what this is all about, huh? You know a man named Tom Roostad, or Roselle? Why? Do you know him? Yeah, I met him. I'm clean, Joe. I don't know about the closet. Now, what about Roostad? When did you see him last? I don't know, a few days ago. Want to pin it down for us? Uh, Monday. Yeah, Monday. That's the last time you saw him? Yeah, we had a couple of drinks in the bar at the corner. I haven't seen him since. We got two people who say you did. All right. Yeah. Well, then go talk to them. Leave me alone. You ever been arrested? Why? Have you? Yeah. What be? Uh, I don't think I'm going to answer that. You don't have to. We'll find out. Narco. Where are you from? All around. Famous city. Frisco, Vegas, Casey, all around. How about Reno? Yeah, I've been through. Is that where you met Roostad? Look, uh, what are you guys after? You got the answer to that when I save some time. I got a lot of time. Probably. Well, let's be honest with each other, huh? Go ahead. Why don't you guys lay out what you got and I'll tell you how close you are. That'd be kind of silly, wouldn't it? Why? Like playing checkers with yourself. Nothing I can do then. How about the closet? Look, you make a pinch, I got no choice. If you're wrong, I'll own City Hall. I don't think we are. And be my guest. All right, you're under arrest. Charge? Suspicion of murder. I'll take the closet. Save you trouble. Hmm? I killed him. The search of the closet turned up a driver's license and other identification for Thomas Roselle. We also found a 25 caliber gun, $2,700 in cash, and a quantity of heroin. The suspect was taken to City Hall for questioning. We ran his name through R&I and found that he had several arrests in the state of California for violation of the State Narcotics Act. 12.16 a.m. We got the full story. We were in business up north. Reno? Yeah, we made a lucky buy. Came down here to sell it. I gave him some connections where he could dump it. Go ahead. Been down here a couple days. He sent a wire telling me the merchandise wasn't moving. I knew it was a lie. Right away I knew it. Good stuff like that. It had to be a market. Mm -hmm. And I got the word. What do you mean? Well, a friend of mine, he called, told me about Tom and this Marsha doll, how they were running around. Yeah. This guy told me Tom was going great with the eight, said he dropped about seven grand of it already. Sure, as soon as I heard that, I got on my horse, made it down here. What happened? Couldn't find out where he was staying, didn't have a trace. What about the motel? Well, I didn't know about that. 
As far as I knew, he was supposed to be here, and that's the way we arranged it. Yeah. I sent out word I wanted to see him for him to get in touch right away. Mm-hmm. He did. Tried to give me the same line about how he couldn't sell. There wasn't a market for it. I told him we'd better call the whole deal off. Just give me the stuff back, we'd call the whole deal off. Yeah. Took some talk, and then we headed for his place. At the motel? Yeah. How'd you get there? My car. What happened then? Oh, when I saw how much he had left, I told him he was lying. I called him a dirty thief, and we had a fight. I shot him. All right, you willing to give us a statement? Sure, why not? I'll get the Does his wife know you? I guess so. That's too bad. I know her. She's a real nice kid. She's really in love with that town. Guess she took it pretty hard. I wouldn't know. Oh, knowing her, she would. Nice kid like that, and he's running around with another broad. Boy, he was a real bum. The way she loved him and doing a thing like that to her. Why don't you take another look? What? What'd you do to her? The story you've just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On November 19th, trial was held in Department 99, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. Wallace Hamilton Olney was tried and convicted of murder in the second degree and received sentence as prescribed by law. Murder in the second degree is punishable by imprisonment for a period of from five years to life in the state penitentiary. of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Frazier. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Dick Perrin, Helen Cleave, Lillian Bioff, Stacey Harris. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Watch an entirely different Dragnet case history each week on your local NBC television station. Please check your newspapers for the day and time. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. The Big Close, so named in part, I'm sure, because it was the last original Dragnet radio play, the rest were reruns, from the last day of summer in 1955. Our thanks to radio scholar and collector Jerry Hendigus for getting us a more listenable copy of that landmark show. You heard it here on The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Barnaby Bristol and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University, celebrating 60 years. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Sixty years. So what might you have heard on the radio 60 years ago? We've been featuring programs from 1961 this evening, but when we heard a snippet a little earlier of Ed Walker and Willard Scott as the Joy Boys on station WRC, it was from the mid-1960s when they were the hottest thing on Washington radio. Here they are, though, on January 25th, 1961, just as you would have heard them, often laughing at their own stuff, that was part of the charm, following news headlines from Bryson Rash. 
There with the news is Bryson Rash. Good evening. The news in brief. President Kennedy holds his first TV news conference, announces release of two American flyers shot down by the Soviets. A U.S. Navy patrol plane has sighted the hijacked cruise ship Santa Maria. The State Department says the revolt is in progress in El Salvador. The jury in the trial of Melvin Reese for the murder of a Jackson family, two in the Jackson family, has not yet been selected. And Arkansas turns down the constitutional amendment to give the district the right to vote for president and vice president. Well, there's the news. This is Bryson Rash reporting. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we take you to the non-existent donut shop where we find two beatniks discussing whom is the most weird. I'm swinging that in. Hi, Pop. Come on over here. Let me talk into your shell-like ear. Speak to me with those protruding lips of yours, big swinger. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, Daddy. What is on your alleged mind? I am more weird than you. Will you snap your fingers a little farther away from my ear? Certainly, certainly, yes. I am far more weird than you are weird. Why sayest that, man? I am the weirdest because I put up my beard in pin curlers. Therefore, I am more weird than you are. I will give you this point, Daddy. That, that is pretty weird, but I am more weird than you. How come you are more weird than we? Because, swinging Pops, I voted for Elvis for president in the last election. What is so weird about that? He won in my precinct. Therefore, I am the most weird of all. You are weird, Daddy, but I am by far the champion of the weirds. Why is that? I listen to the Joy Boys on WRC Radio, man. Daddy, you win. You are weird, Daddy. We are the Joy Boys of Radio. We chase electrons to and fro. We are the Joy Boys of Radio. We chase electrons to and fro. the Joy Boys program for Wednesday night. This is Ed Walker here. We have with us the very charming and delightful Madame Blanche a Bleached T-Bone, who is our WRC staff singer, and she's going to, uh, from time to time, sing a song for industry. It's oh, yes! It's a new feature. That, wait a minute. Oh, no, that's <laughs> the note. There it is. I was looking for it. Oh, it. From time to time, we will be uh, on a new fe uh, uh, feature called Saluting the Industries of Our Nation. And, Miss T, would you get on mic a little more, honey? Certainly, Over yes. Here. Oh, yes. Here is Miss Blaich T-Bone to sing the theme song of the National Yo-Yo Institute. I've got the world on a string, sitting on a rainbow, got the string around my finger. That's fine. Ah! That's uh, Miss mm. T-Bone. That's beautiful. Thank you very much. Miss Bleach T-Bone and uh, I've got the world on a string. Dedicate that to the oh, National Yo-Yo Manufacturers. Play a record, George, please. The music of Glenn Gray, the orchestra. That's called Stella by Starlight. Ed Walker with his partner Willard Scott as the Joy Boys from five days after the inauguration of President John F. Kennedy in 1961. Ed Walker finished his astonishing Hall of Fame radio career right here on the big broadcast and WAMU 88.5. It's an honor to carry on his sterling legacy. 
I'm Murray Horwitz. There was no pandemic in the United States in 1961, but there was terror. Americans of all ages and races were at least a little preoccupied with the bomb, the threat of nuclear war. And the very next year, it became a near thing during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The idea of building shelters, both private and public, to protect people against radioactive fallout from a nuclear blast was widespread. In September of 1961, a month before WAMU took to the airwaves, President Kennedy published a letter about fallout shelters in Life magazine. There's a picture of the cover of it on our Facebook page. Fallout shelters appeared in popular culture. On TV, there was a famous 1961 Rod Serling Twilight Zone episode called simply The Shelter, a Time magazine article, we'll post that on Facebook too, and, happily for us, an episode from a show that was among the few remaining dramatic series on radio that year, the masterful Suspense. As late as 1961, it was still taking shots at the upstart medium of television, as you'll hear. From just a couple of weeks after President Kennedy's letter, it's a drama called No Hiding Place, and it comes from October 1st, 1961, CBS and the series Suspense. And now, a tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. Listen now to No Hiding Place, starring Court Benson and Grace Matthews, and written especially for Suspense by William N. Robeson. No, there's no hiding place down there. Not when the gods of wrath loose their terrible swift sword. Not when the hound of heaven carries his quarry down the curving lanes of space. Not when there's the bomb. But these things happen to somebody else, not to us. The bomb won't drop on us, we tell ourselves. Death will not come for us. And death, offstage, smiles and nods and agrees. No one ever dies until he is dead. Here and there you find a strange one, a citizen and taxpayer who believes what he reads in the papers, a fellow who takes things seriously, a fellow who looks after his own, a fellow like Sam Endover, husband, father, and a man who believes if you don't do it yourself, nobody will do it for you. To you, maybe, but not for you. What's that mean? Nothing, really. Just trying to get things started. Seems to me you got enough started with that bomb shelter you're digging in the backyard. Fallout shelter, Mary Lou. No such thing as a bomb shelter these days. Bombs are too big. No protecting against them. Just fallout. No place in the country is safe from radioactive fallout after an attack. Except us. And folks like us, who've built their own shelters. Well, just between you and me, Sam, I wouldn't be caught dead in that cave you've dug. You'd sure be caught dead outside of it to come an attack. Hey, Pop. Yes, Andy? There are a couple of fellows outside from the TV station. TV? Oh, yes. They want to know where the bomb shelter is. Uh, Fallout shelter, Sandy. Sam, what is this? Uh, Tell them it's out back and uh, tell your sister to come out. They'll probably want to put us all on TV, I suspect. 
put us on TV. The very idea, Sam Andover. Springing a thing like this on me without any warning. My hair is a sight. My dress is a now, mess. Now, 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 Mary Lou. You look just fine to me. Oh, no what? Aha, uh-huh. that'll be the mayor, I imagine. The mayor? Yes, you know how politicians like to get in on things like this. It's a big story. Locally, that is. Sam Andover, I'll be surprised if I ever speak to you again as long as I live. <laughs> And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege to introduce your friend and mine, his honor, the Mayor of Happy Valley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie Lemon. This is a great and historic occasion, my fellow citizens. It marks the completion of the very first fallout shelter in our fair city. It is not only as your mayor, but as head of your civil defense organization that I am here today to congratulate our public-minded fellow townsman, Sam Endover. <laughs> now, at first sight... He's talking about me. The very idea of pulling this on me without any warning. Daddy, do I look all right? You look scrumptious, honey. The red light's on. Means the camera's on us. Merciful heavens. Say cheese, honey. Here's Sam Endover and his lovely wife, Mrs. Endover, and his two lovely children. Sam, Sam, I want you to know Happy Valley is proud of you. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Now, Sam, maybe you'd like to tell all the folks out there how come you came to build this fallout shelter. Well, Your Honor, it seemed to me everybody was talking about defense and shelters, and nobody was doing anything about it. It seemed like somebody ought to get started, so I decided to build it. Splendid, splendid. Citizenship in action. Wouldn't you say, Mrs. Endover? It uh, doesn't make any difference what I say. When my husband gets a bee in his bonnet, it's a, an ID fixé, if you know what I mean. Yes. Yes, indeed I do. And uh, what about the young folks? What do you think about your dad's project, hmm? Who, me? Yes, my dear, you. What's your name? Uh, I'm Cindy. And I'm Sandy. Yes, I Sandy. Think that... Just a minute, Cindy. Uh, how do you like this fallout shelter? Oh, I don't know. Is it comfortable? I don't know. I guess so. Oh, how would you know? You've never even been down in it. Have you, Sandy? Sure. I think it's cool and a half. Cool and... (laughs) Well, Sam, now how about telling the folks about your shelter, eh? Well, okay. Um, Well, now up above here, you can see the two ventilating pipes. You pump stale air out of this one, and it's replaced by fresh air through this one. Uh, Now inside, well, (laughs) it isn't a mansion... But it's got all the necessities, canned goods, uh, bottled water, paper towels, paper plates, first aid kit. And you've got a radio, of course. Oh, yes, and extra batteries. Everything to keep the family going for two weeks. Splendid, just splendid. You're to be congratulated, Sam. Happy Valley is indeed proud of you. It's uh, very impressive, Mr. Andover. But will it work? Uh, What do you mean, Charlie? Well, do you really think four people could live in that little room for two weeks? Of course I do. Personally, I doubt they could stand it for a week. Even for a weekend. Now, look here, Charlie Lemon. We're talking about survival. About a matter of life or death. Yes, I know. But just between you and me, Mr. Andover, would you really put your family down there in that little hole? I most certainly would, if it became necessary. And I'll prove it to you, and and to all the other doubters, just how good my shelter is. What do you mean? Well, I, I'll take my family into it right now, just just as if we were... And we'll spend the weekend down there, with no discomfort at all. And you can stay here if you like, and 
And take our pictures when we come out. Maybe that'll be proof, Mr. Charlie Wise Guy Lemon. Sam, are you out of your mind? No, but I'm good and mad, and that would be a convincing demonstration, Mr. Andover, if you really mean it. I mean it. Go on, Sandy, pile in there. Oh, boy, the whole weekend. All right, you next, Cindy. Daddy, I've got a date tonight. No time for dates. This is going to be just like it'd be if there was an attack. In you go. But, Daddy, I... In... All right, you next, Mary Lou. Sam, I told you I wouldn't be caught dead down there. You're not going to let me down in front of the TV audience now, are you? I just know. Mary Lou, please be a pal. Sam, I... Besides, it's beginning to rain. Smile for the camera, like you were saying cheese, not cones. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Sam Andover has just locked himself and his family into his backyard fallout shelter to demonstrate how comfortable and safe it is. Good luck to you, Mr. Andover, and to your courageous family who will spend the weekend in your homemade fallout shelter. We return you now to our studios. Yeah, you were a little hard on Sam Andover. Maybe, but it's a better story this way, isn't it? Well, yes, I suppose so. Better story for civil defense. We might even be able to tie it into a network news show. Get it all over the country. My, my, that would be wonderful for Happy Valley, wouldn't it? Wouldn't hurt you either. Come next November, would it, Mr. Mayor? Well, I... I wasn't thinking of that. Of course not. Hey, Charlie. Yeah? Studio's on the horn. Thanks, Joe. Charlie Lemon here. This is Mr. Richards, Charlie. Yes, sir? That was a nice fast when you just pulled on Sam Endover. (laughs) Well, you know how it is. You made a good show out of a routine pickup. I thought so. Well, here's one that may top that. What is it? You get that mobile unit up to Larson Dam as quick as you can. What's the trouble? Well, there's none yet, but there may be plenty. The rain that just started down here is a cloudburst upriver. They're afraid the dam can't handle it. I'm on my way. Motor one over and out. Wrap it up, boys. We're pulling out. But what about them, Endover and his family? You heard what Sam said. They're safe down there for two weeks. (laughs) Say, now, you can't beat this, can you? (laughs) All the comforts of home. Like what? Why... Electric lights, radio, running water. No television. Why isn't there any TV, Dad? It takes up too much room, makes too much heat. And anyway, under attack conditions, we'd have to depend on radio for instructions. What are we going to do without any TV? There are books. Yes, indeed. The Bible, Shakespeare, and what to do till your doctor comes. And there are magazines. Here, Cindy, here's your favorite movie magazine. I saw that one two weeks ago. Hmm. Look, Dad, can I get out of here? I got a very important date with Alan. I'm sure Alan understands he probably saw you on TV. Oh, no. <laughs> or heard about you on radio. You're a celebrity, you know. First on TV and then on radio. <laughs> we all are. Celebrities. Celebrity or not, the air's getting close down here. All right. Sandy, crank up the vent blowers. Sure, Dad. Yeah. That clears her out in a hurry. It does? Hadn't noticed any difference. You will. Sam, listen. I've gone along with this the way you asked me to, but don't ask too much. I'm telling you now I intend to sleep in my own bed tonight. Then can I go on my date? You two don't seem to realize how important this is. I realize you let yourself be tricked by that smooth-talking Charlie Lemon into putting your family through one of the silliest, most uncomfortable darn fool things. Wait a minute. Look at it this way, Mary Lou. When people see how easy it is for us to get by in a shelter... Easy? Ha! 
maybe they might build shelters for themselves. Uh, turn up the radio, son. Let's see what they have to say about us. ...have been falling steadily in the city and surrounding countryside for several hours. This unprecedented downpour has placed a strain on the Larson Dam... ...and it's now doubtful if it can hold through the night. Residents in Hawthorne Ravine, beneath the dam... ...are being evacuated by police and civilian defense teams... Elsewhere, mudslides have blocked several roads in the outskirts of the city. Just five minutes ago, the mayor declared a state of emergency in Happy Valley and wired the governor to designate the town as a disaster area. In addition to the flood danger, mudslides created by the heavy rain are threatening homes in many areas. Civil defense I don't understand that they haven't mentioned us on the radio all evening. They have more important things on their minds, it would appear. Well, it's uh, time to go to bed. Very well, dear. You want a lower or an upper? I say go to bed. In my own bed. In my own house. But we can't do that, Mary Lou. That would be cheating, going back on my word. Nobody's going to know or care. They've forgotten all about us with this storm. Well, Cindy, you ready for bed? Oh, yes, Mother. I want to stay down here. I don't care what you men do, but us ladies are going to sleep in the house tonight. Now, listen, Mary Lou. You listen to me, Sam. I'm fed up. I've had it up to here. Now, you let me out of here this minute. The lights! Hey, hey. What's that? Turn on the lights! Just a minute. Wait, 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 wait till I find a flashlight. The storm, the power failure, that's all. That's all. Daddy, you know I hate the dark. Here's a flashlight, Dad. Uh, good boy, Sandy. I'm scared, Daddy. Now, 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 there's nothing to be scared about, honey. We're all together. Are we? Are you ready to stop this nonsense and go back to the house? Oh... All right, Mary Lou, I guess so. But there probably won't be any lights there either. There'll be hot water and room to move around in. All right, all right, you win. We'll go back to the house. That's funny. What? The door's stuck. Here, son, take this light a minute, honey. Try to free her. She's given a little. Sam, look. Eh, what? Squeezing around the edge of the door. Mud. Well, there's no wonder I couldn't push it open against all that muck. They said on the radio, mudslides. We're buried in a mudslide. What are we going to do? Nothing, Mary Lou. There's nothing we can do. We're stuck here until they come and get us. I'm scared, Daddy. I'm scared. No, Sam, no. We can't stay down here. Buried alive. Now, shut up, both of you. We, We can and we will. This shelter was designed and equipped to keep the four of us alive for two weeks. We'll all be dead in two weeks. They'll come for us long before no, that. No, 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 They'll forget. They, they've got too many other people to take care of. They'll leave us here to rot in our I said to shut up. <gasps> Gee, Papa. Oh, Sam. You hit me. Well, I'm sorry, darling. I, I had to. This is no time to panic. Sandy. Yes, Dad? Get on the air pump. I want to make sure our ventilation is working. Sure, Pop. She's pulling the used air out okay. Yep. We're getting good pressure from the outside. Good. Now, listen to me. We have nothing to worry about. Absolutely nothing. We're in the identical situation we'd be in after an H-bomb attack. We're forced to remain in this shelter for an indeterminate length of time. We have fresh air. We have food. We have a little light. What happens when those... Batteries burn out. They won't. If we use the light carefully, they'll last more than two weeks. 
There's only one thing that can hurt us. What, Daddy? What can hurt us? Ourselves. Cowardice. Panic. Tears. Hysteria. Like I said, we're okay and we're provided for. And there's only one thing that is asked of us. What's that, Dad? That we survive. No hiding place down there. Not when forces beyond man's control conspire against man's comfort and convenience. No hiding place. When thunderheads climb majestically in the summer afternoon and dump a Niagara of rain in one little river valley. A whim of nature from which no man is altogether safe. But at least, nature's whim and not man's. A storm that is over with the next day's sun. Not a man-made sun exploding and poisoning air and earth and sky for days on end. Mobile One, Charlie Lemon speaking. This is Richards, Charlie. You going to call it a day? Two days and a night. I'm beat. Well, I'll bet you are. Will you take tomorrow off now? I'll have Eddie Hartwig cover the mobile unit for you. Thanks, Mr. Richards. We'll be pretty quiet. Just clean up stuff. Dam's holding and the water's dropping. Of course, the mudslides will be giving some trouble until they settle, but they're mostly in new subdivisions in the hills. And everyone's been evacuated from the really bad areas. Well, you can be proud of yourself, Charlie. You've got a lot of fine pickups the last couple of days, beginning yesterday morning with that family in the fallout shelter. Holy smokes, I forgot all about them. Well, no wonder you've been a little busy. Uh, No, no, listen, Mr. Richards. They live in Holly Glens. That's the site of one of the worst mudslides. And I was the one who dared them to go into that shelter. It's all my fault. But they're all right. They're in the shelter. That's for sure. But how do you know they're all right? I wear my pink pajamas in the summer when it's hot. I wear my woolen nighty in the winter when it's not. And sometime in the springtime and sometime in the fall, I jump between the sheets without a darn thing on at all. That's <laughs> <laughs> ah, a long, long, long time since I heard that song. <laughs> where did you learn it, Sandy? In the Scouts. <laughs> well, I'll be. That's where I first heard it. Yeah. When I was a scout, yeah? Way back before the war. <laughs> uh, which war, Dad? Well, the World War, of course. One or two? Sandy, your father's a young man. Why, he almost missed the Second World War. He was so young. Yes, I had to lie about my age, but they finally made me a drummer boy with an armor division. <laughs> Come on, Daddy. Uh, Mary Lou, this is wonderful. What is, honey? We're talking to each other. We're kidding with each other. We're not looking at television. It's just wonderful. Oh, it is nice, isn't it? Yeah. I'm pleased to meet you, Mary Lou. Oh. I'm glad to make your acquaintance, Sandy. Hi. Glad to know you, Cindy. Oh, Daddy. (laughs) We've all been away from each other far too long. Sam? Yes, darling. Hold my hand. (laughs) Like that? Like that. And squeeze it hard. Like that. Oh, Sam, I don't want to get lost from you again. You won't, honey, I promise. Uh, Daddy. Yes, dear. I don't feel so good. What's the matter? I've got a headache. And I feel sort of woozy. Oh, well, we'll fix that. Sandy, man the pumps. Aye, aye, sir. All you need is a little fresh air, my girl. And that's what we got. Fresh air coming up. Hey, Dad. Yeah? Something's funny. This pump's hard to turn. Well, let me see. Yeah, so it is. All right, keep turning while I test the suction. 
No, it's not pumping any air out. Uh, hand me that broom, Sandy. Here you are. You. Let's poke it up the pipe and see what's obstructing it. Oh, my... Sam, what is it? Oh, no. Sam, where's all that mud coming from? From the ventilating pipe, that's where. The mudslide's covered the shelter completely. It's, it's blocking the vents. It's cut off our air. We're trapped down here. Sam. Sam, now, don't you press the panic button. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. I'm, I'm sorry. I wouldn't want to have to slap your face. Oh, that, that would never do. Not in front of the children. Daddy, my headache's something awful. I'll get you some aspirin. But I'm not sure it'll do any good. Oh, why not? Well, I... I, I think Daddy better tell you. Hell, now listen carefully, kids, and quietly. We're in a bad spot. Our air's cut off. We only have as much air to breathe as there is in the shelter. Now, uh, I want you to lie down and, and don't make any sudden movements. Don't breathe deeply. We've got to conserve the air as long as we can. For how long, Dad? I don't know, Sandy. Until they come and dig us out. But they won't come. Mother said so. The crying won't make them come. Now knock it off. Yes, Daddy. Take this aspirin, dear. Wait a minute. We're having so much fun entertaining ourselves, I forgot all about the portable radio. Turn it on, son. Yeah. Let's see if anybody's got a bigger disaster than we have. Evacuation post in the basement of the police station. Two bulldozers are needed at once in Holly Glen. Two bulldozers to Holly Glen at Dad, once. Yeah. Holly Glen. Attention, Maybe they Sam remember. They have, listen. This is a message to Sam Andover and his family in their bomb shelter in Holly Glen. Your shelter is buried beneath a mudslide. Mudslide? We are making every effort to dig you out. Oh, thank God. Bulldozers are on their way. But meantime, volunteer civil defense workers are shoveling away at this mountain of mud from which I am speaking directly above you. Hang Why on. Above us? Don't panic. Help is on its way. On its way. But will it get here soon enough? <laughs> Look, Mr. Mayor, that mudslide's treacherous, Charlie. As soon as the dozer cuts away a path, the hill comes down and fills it up. Is there any estimate on when they'll get through? It's anybody's guess. I feel terrible about this. No, it's my fault they're down there. Don't feel too bad yet. Look at what happened to their house. That big tree fell right across the bedroom wing. They'd all be dead if they'd been there last night. Maybe they're dead anyway. Let us pray that they're not. Yeah, you do that. Hey, Joe. Yeah? Uh, cut me into program channel. Okay. Start in my queue. This is a message to Sam Andover and his family. This is a message to Sam Andover and his family. Charlie Lemon speaking. This mudslide is giving us a lot of trouble, but the bulldozers are making headway. Two of them have been working for the last hour. Sandy. And we've sent for two oh, more. Sandy. So don't worry. He's We're going to get you out. I repeat. She's still breathing. This is a message to Sam Let me turn Andover off the radio. and his family. Oh, honey, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry. Hush. Don't get excited. Don't use up the air, dear. It's all my fault. I got, I got you into this. I made you. You brought us all together, Sam. That's what's most important. We're together. For the first time. Long, long time. Sam? Yes, dear. K- 
kiss me, Sam. I guess I'm slipping. I, I thought I heard... So did I. The tricks our imagination plays on us. No. No, it isn't imagination. They made it. They got here. Oh, thank God. All right. I'll take Cindy. Can you handle Sandy? Yes, dear. Smile for the television cameras. I know. Like I was saying, cheese, not room. Suspense. You've been listening to No Hiding Place, starring Court Benson and Grace Matthews, and written especially for Suspense by William N. Robeson. This is Stuart Metz. Inviting you to listen again next week when we return with Dreams, written by Jack Bundy. Another tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Suspense, one of the last network radio dramas of the golden age and a topical story called No Place to Hide from the month that WAMU started broadcasting, October of 1961. And from that very station, this is the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. When I say that the bomb and the reaction to it were on everyone's mind in 1961, I'm not fooling. The same month as that suspense play aired, the humorist Gene Shepard took to his microphone, prompted by a Time magazine article called Gun Thy Neighbor. Yes, we'll post a link to that on Facebook, too. We'll post a lot of stuff about fallout shelters there. Anyway, the article quotes many religious leaders about the ethics of shooting people who want to get into your fallout shelter in the event of a nuclear attack. Really. And that word, attack, is the central issue as far as Gene Shepard was concerned. On October 16, 1961, if you were listening to radio station WOR in New York, you would have heard Gene Shepard talking about the ethics of what he calls an air raid shelter, And here's an excerpt of that broadcast. Do you ever have a feeling that you're the only person alive? I mean, really alive. (laughs) Uh, It can be dangerous. Well, I had that feeling, and it it was a subtle kind of a feeling, and a feeling of almost unbearable. Uh, The word isn't loneliness, really. Uh, A kind of unbearable sense of time, place, and perhaps the imminent end of it all. I mean, even if it's 50 years from now or 100 years, that's still imminent, historically speaking. That's an imminent end. And and anyway, how how this came about is that I'm on 6th Avenue on Sunday, and it was a cold day. And a cold, brisk, partially sunny day with the sun coming out, you know, in spots and patches and a lot of wind blowing along. And I'm, I'm in the general vicinity, going south, by the way, in the general vicinity of Rockefeller Center. And there were a lot of people there. You know, the, the, who are all these people that go to... The, who are these people that go to the Radio City Music Hall on the weekends? Where do they come from? Don't they have a movie house at home? Thing there. Well, anyway, I'm walking past... 
uh, Radio City and all this jazz, you know, the whole blah-blah-blah is going on, the brouhaha is going, and the people are going back and forth and going into Howard Johnson's and the whole business there. Short, stout ladies with their with their stays creaking, you know, their corsets popping, and all their playtexes in the proper place. I'm walking along past there, and I'm in the middle of all this. When I became suddenly, inexplicably, eerily aware of a sound which had an almost... Have you have you had momentary tastes or smells or have heard sounds that just for an instant seeped into your consciousness and really into your unconsciousness because you're usually not conscious of something this subtle. It's an unconscious absorption of it. When suddenly there is a, a, a great feeling of sadness and a feeling of something you have missed. Something that uh, you once knew maybe. An excitement of, of some kind that has been lost. Do you know the feeling I'm talking about? It doesn't happen very often, but boy, when it happens, it hits you like a, you know, like a rock right between the eyes. And it hit me on 6th Avenue. It was a sound, a sudden sound. And without thinking, I just instantly looked up. Because it was the kind of sound that somehow associated itself in my mind, subconsciously, with looking up. It's just like a taste will cause you to salivate. Uh, certain bells will cause you to become hungry because this bell used to be rung in school when it was time for lunch or something. You, you don't even remember it. You know, you automatically go into Howard Johnson's and order a hot dog. Uh, you heard the bell. You didn't know why you were suddenly hungry. Well, I looked up and for crying out loud, what did I see over, over 6th Avenue? Let me tell you this. Is there anybody else that saw it? Well, this is how I got the feeling of being intensely alone. This whole crowd was pouring into the, into the music hall, and all of them were in and out of Howard Johnson's, and all of them were getting in and out of buses and hollering, and you could hear their corsets popping. And not one of them looked up. I was the only one. And I'm standing on the street corner, and I had the feeling that I wanted to start hollering, Hey, look, look up there. For crying out loud, look. But then I realized that they would all think I'm an idiot and a kook. And you don't want to be thought you're an idiot and a kook, do you, in this sane civilization? Of course not. And so I look up there, and what did I see? but a long, thin, waving skein of Canadian geese. Yeah, flying over Radio City. How do you like that? I had heard them. You know how geese sound? Have you ever heard them going? And, and these, these babies were up there. Let me tell you, they were flying high. They must have been, oh, maybe 1,500 feet over Manhattan. And this long skein, and they kept jockeying for position. And there must have been 350 of them, or maybe more. It's hard to tell. But that long, wavy line, and way down there at the point, it was a big, crooked V. And they were in V formation, and they were flying in their long-distance beat. And I could see them sort of bracketed there, you know? You could see the 666 building on one side, and all these people running in and out of the music hall. And somewhere, someplace, I had caught the sound of these geese. And I'm looking up, and now I can't hear it anymore, you see because of traffic and because I am conscious of it. The sense of this, uh, this sudden loss, I don't know what it is, uh, I suppose we all have a nostalgia for, for uh, what is it? Uh, the, the, well, I suppose you might say the animal kingdom or the, the natural thing that we have sprung from. Of course, this leads us to a lot of theological and philosophical confusion uh, because it is a quite evident fact that we are part of the animal world, whether we like it or not. We're here we are, you know, we breathe, we eat, we operate the same way. But we have, we have an additional thing, and that is the thing that makes us the most dangerous creature on the face of the earth. That uh, we have, for example, vindictiveness, which other animals don't have. Uh, we have love for nothing but ourselves. 
which other animals don't have. They don't have any kind of love at all that we can see. But while we're on the subject of, of, uh, of the animals and this, the geese, uh, I, I'm not going to talk any more about this I'm, because it's getting to the point now where the thing is, is, is really getting, I'd say, into the area of mass insanity. And that's this discussion of the ethics of the air raid shelter. I have a lot of things to say about it, but I'm not going to say all the things that I feel. And the most intriguing thing that I have noticed about the, well, let's say the people who are analyzing the ethics of the air raid shelter and have come up with the answer that it is ethical to kill your neighbor if he's trying to get into your air raid shelter is the language they use. Invariably, the language seems to take the form of attacker or aggressor even in the case of some of the more virulent of them. Uh, to refer to a man who is under attack by the common enemy. Remember, he's not attacking your home. Uh, the enemy is attacking both of you. Now, to consider him as an aggressor or an attacker because he is seeking shelter is an interesting definition of the word attack. And to be able to define that word in such a way that you somehow can give a moral basis to killing a man for, quote, attack. Now, perhaps you are not aware of what's been going on, and I will have to preface this little discussion here with the fact that recently several prominent theologians have come out with the startling news that it is ethical if you have built an air raid shelter and your neighbor is not with an air raid shelter, and if the attack comes and you're in your shelter and he wants to come in and take shelter with you and insists upon it, it is ethical for you to shoot him, kill him if necessary, on the grounds that this is called protecting your family. Well, it seems that there are two ethics involved. One of them seems to say that if a man has a wife and family, this gives him a different ethic from a man who does not have that. That's an interesting <laughs> stretching of morality points. I, I, I was not quite aware that they were that stretchable, but apparently they are. Uh, that's another thing. But one of the things that is an intriguing aspect to the whole discussion is that you are justifying killing on a moral basis of attack. In short, your killing is justified. If you have if you have defined this man's attempt to get into your shelter, to seek shelter from an enemy attack which is coming from without, and which, by the way, he has no control over, no more than you have, uh, you are defining this attempt to gain shelter as an attack. Now, uh, since you have defined it that way, this means, then, that you are giving a moral justification to killing as long as your home is under attack. This seems to be the chief, the, the chief uh, argument that these people give, that if your home, if your family is under attack, that anything is justified, that killing is justified. Well, it all resolves itself into the word attack, the justification of attack. This means that you're probably aware that this justifies almost every war that's ever been fought. Because any nation can use that word attack, can use that word and can, can in many, many various real ways define it to fit their own convenience. In other words, a Russian considers himself under attack if you refuse to allow him to carry out a scheme which you consider illegal. <laughs> so he says he's attacking the welfare of our people. This man is an aggressor. That's why defense can become an aggressive act. 
And as a matter of fact, as you are aware, that defense was considered an aggressive act in many areas in Korea during the Korean War because of the interesting type of definition given to the word attack. Are you following this semantical discussion? In short, you had better be careful when you start to give a moral basis to killing. And when you base it on the very, very flexible definition of the word attack, attack on my home. Uh, because your home can be many things. Your home can also be the psychological and the philosophical and the political climate in which you live. And so if a man is attacking the political home that you live in, this could justify your killing of him. Are you aware of that? <laughs> Under this interesting definition. Now, what has intrigued me so much about it is that most of the defense for this very interesting kind of ethic has come from theologians of one kind or another. And uh, intriguingly enough, most of them have tried to apply theological grounds for their definitions, neatly sidestepping one of the most important of all commandments, which flatly says, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> Plat, plump, just says it. It doesn't say if, and, but, or why. It just says you shouldn't. Uh, but that's, again, uh, too easy to, to uh, point out. However, I, I'd like to read to you a letter that I received from one, and I will not even discuss, uh, I will not tell you the place or the name of it. Let's say it's written on, a, on the stationery of a church, and it's signed by the man who is in charge of this church. He goes on to say, oh, oh by the way, they refer to the fact that anyone who discusses this problem as having misunderstood the point. That anyone, for example, a bishop recently came out and was appalled at the idea that people could justify killing uh, in the air raid shelter problem. And uh, this man refers to that man as having misunderstood the problem. That's an interesting catch-all, but he does not say where he misunderstood or how. I'm afraid that what he did was to understand it too well, that you can understand a thing so well that you are considered by those who refuse to understand as having misunderstood. You understand what I'm saying there? Here I will quote him. He says, Old Shepherd, he says, I know that you value an honest opinion. And remember, this is a man who is an accredited leader of a church. When it comes to moralizing on bomb shelters, I think you're an ox. Good-natured, but a little slow. You see, because what I'm doing is taking the Christian attitude. <laughs> that is, of course, often very, very ox-like in connection with most churches. Uh, in connection with this, I enclose another clipping from today's Times concerning Bishop Dunn who at least quotes his source correctly. Incidentally, I quoted the same source and exactly the same way that Bishop Dunn did. He says, before he misunderstands it. Is it also unjust to defend one's home? No. The implication that is... Now, see, what he says is that anybody who tries to get into a shelter is attacking your home. This is not true. Your air raid shelter, first of all, is not your home. Secondly, uh, he is not attacking your home. He is asking for your charity. Now, the assumption that this man is going to come in covered with fallout dust or radiation dust is very specious because if he is alive and is trying to get into your air raid shelter, it is very, very shortly and almost momentarily before a bomb will explode. It is very doubtful whether he will be alive much longer or would even be there to do it. Uh, this is another thing where I think most people misunderstand the idea of why uh, an air raid shelter. It is not dangerous to allow someone to come into your shelter. He is not any more covered with radiation or fallout dust more than you are, unless he happens to wander in two months later. And I doubt whether you'd even be there. 
But anyway, this is, he goes on to say, does shepherd, and remember, this is, a, this is a man who's the head of a church speaking. He says, does shepherd believe in those perpetrators of brotherly love? How can you perpetrate brotherly love? And he quotes it. It's always in quote, brotherly love. Who try to break into bomb shelters. They're not trying to get in to be, to be sheltered. They're trying to break into bomb shelters. What I'm trying to impress on you here is the significant thing is the language that is being used by these people. The language is all that of an enemy attacking you, which makes it very easy to destroy a man as long as you consider him an enemy. If I consider a, a, a poor bum on 6th Avenue who comes up and asks me for a dime as an aggressor, as an attacker, it makes it very easy for me to hit him in the eye. And, and it makes it very simple. Now, I would like to ask the same man. Uh, of course, he assumes that he will be in the shelter or that the good people will be in their shelters. What about all those good people who won't be, who have made shelters, who are on their way home from the office at 4.10 when the bomb hits at 4.12, and they have to run out on the street and look for a place to hide? They've done the best they could. Their family, by the way, is with them. They're, they've been to the theater, to, to a matinee. And their, their shelter is up in Wilton, Connecticut. Now they're out running around on the streets. Are they aggressors? Are they attackers? Are they perpetrators of brotherly love when they come and knock on the door? A very interesting question. Under his definition, yes. They are attackers, aggressors. This is the same kind of language, you know, that the dialectic communists use. That anyone <laughs> can be called an aggressor. <laughs> That's a fascinating word. And he refers to it as defending oneself. And he says, no, not defending oneself out of love for the attacking party. Who says you're asked to be... No one's asking you to love the attacking party. There's an angry one calling. No, is, are they for us? Huh? They're pro? I can't understand you. They're poor. Four. Oh, they're bored? Oh, well, a lot of people are bored. Well, then you go down the dial. You'll find something that doesn't bore you, dear. You go on down. I don't care whether you're bored. It does not make a, a particle of difference to me whether you're bored or not. And as a matter of fact, boredom always springs within the person himself. You've heard the old cliche. So if you're bored, go on down to the Howard Johnson, get yourself one of the 28 flavors. Go on. Turn on the TV set, you clown. I mean, don't and, and write an angry letter to the management, too. That'll give you something to do. Go on. That'll get you on the stick. Go on. Hurry up. I'm tired of listening to this boredom talk. I'm bored, as a matter of fact. I'm bored with 97% of the idiots who write and call and say, please play this tune. Please talk about your... Please blow your nose flute. Uh, please talk about your Aunt Minnie. You know? <laughs> talk about boredom. Well, uh, the, 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 the facts of the matter are, I think that time, from, from time to time, somebody should say something about some of the idiotic ethical problems that are facing us. And that when, when people are continually ducking out of the issue or and glossing over it, I think this is an interesting kind of immorality. So some clown calls up and says he's bored. What do you expect me to do? Uh, <laughs> I start blowing the nose flute? Uh, that's the trouble with many Americans, is they're too easily bored, that the world has to be showbiz to them. And if it isn't showbiz, they're bored. Oh, I'm bored. Will you tell this idiot to please get off that subject? For heaven's sakes, who cares about his ridiculous little subject? <laughs> For heaven's sakes. Please, Matt, will you? Get rid of that fool. All right, fine. But uh, I may be. Uh, but I'm, I'm furious when I get letters from, from, uh, from people who are professional Christians, who use their professional standards to... Uh, standing, I should say, not standards even, to defend a, a fantastically and grossly immoral act. And uh, 
And I'm not going to say any more about it, except to say that when you begin to, to define the word aggression and attack as a man coming to your place looking for help, this is a fascinating definition of attack or aggression. You realize that. And if you justify killing on that interesting kind of morality, be careful. Because it could very well boomerang. And uh, I can only say that uh, this sort of thing, if sufficiently publicized, would give the rest of the world a fascinating insight to how selfish Americans really can be. And I hope we're not. I hope this is a tiny minority of us who is making all this noise. <laughs> well, I'll have one final thing to say on this. I do not think the fallout shelters are, are not necessary. I do not think that fallout shelters are... I think, however, that fallout shelters should be a community effort. And I think that they should... I think, actually, they should be part of the same defense mechanism that has created the radar system, the dual line. They should be part of the same defense system that has created, uh, let's say, anti-rocket rockets, that has created interceptor fighters. And I think that it is up to us, as responsible people, to see that there is shelter provided for everyone. And then there wouldn't be this insane, ridiculous argument going on. But since obviously we feel this would, would cost us something, we, we prefer to allow it to go a hit and miss and a ridiculous kind of childish putting together little pieces system. And, and by the way, one more interesting thing about it is that apparently many, many people are making a lot of money off of it. Uh, this seems to not bother too many people. I think it's an immoral thing. Many people are making much money off of it, and so hence there obviously must be pressures to keep this from becoming a community effort. I am making no accusations. I am just stating an opinion. <laughs> uh, the whole thing, uh, I think, has had it as far as I'm concerned. I'm not going to discuss it any longer. Uh, I do feel, however, that... Uh, oh, it's interesting, the number of angry calls that people will, will call. Oh, boy, they're going to defend their wife and children. I'm not arguing about defending your wife and children. This isn't the question. No one is arguing you shouldn't defend your wife and children. But you are still trying to convince me that a man coming to your shelter asking for shelter is attacking your wife and children. This is an interesting definition of attack. Fascinating definition. What would you do if it was a seven-year-old boy? Maybe even your boy. Is he an attacker? Is he an aggressor? Oh, no. Your child's going to be in the shelter, I'm sure. I'm sure. Wouldn't you expect someone to allow him to come into a shelter if he's caught, say four miles away at the playground when it happens and no one can get at him? Your station wagon can't get through the rubble? Oh, sure. Sure. Some nice person will take him in. Oh, no. Not if you make this the general rule. You better be careful before you call angrily and talk about defending your wife and children. Other people may have to do it. <laughs> Remember that. Other people may have to defend your wife and children, in which case you'd better hope that there are a few Samaritans around of the good type. But you know, getting back to the geese, the funny thing about those geese, I, I, I'm not sure that the geese or any of the rest of the things in the world are even remotely concerned, nor are they, they, they can't comprehend what could very well happen to the globe that's operated, controlled, and owned by all of us. Uh, <laughs> uh, here, here those geese were up there flying away there as if there was nothing happening. They weren't looking for a shelter. Uh, they were just flapping away. How, way up there, a, a mile above Rockefeller Center, heading home. And it was a funny thing, you know. I, I saw them, and, and I suddenly, it was as though something got back into focus for a moment there. That there is something else out there. There is a world out there. 
But then again, I, I, I may, must say this before we leave. I think that this is a tempest in a teacup. I think that there are a few people talking, and the vast majority of Americans, and I do believe this, and I don't think this is a namby-pamby attitude, I think the vast majority of Americans would allow their neighbor to come into their shelter. They couldn't turn the other way. They just couldn't. Uh, because they themselves are alive. They themselves are out of shelters most of their lives in one way or the other. So I think this is a tempest in a teacup. And it's one of those philosophical arguments that occasionally pop up in man's time that seem to be of fantastic importance, but never seem to be acted out. I think that in the, in the case of actual attack, we would act differently. And in fact, I love to think so. I hope so. <laughs> keep your knees loose, Dad. Just keep them loose. Gene Shepard, addressing one of the really hot topics of 1961, the ethics of the personal fallout shelter on WOR in New York. That broadcast came just about a week before WAMU started operations here in Washington. A few years later, our station started what became this show, The Big Broadcast, and we're still here. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arold Bailey. Barnaby Bristol and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University, celebrating 60 years. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. A funny thing happened on the way to playing the next installment of Norman Corwin's One World Flight, or maybe it wasn't so funny. We knew that when we last heard from Mr. Corwin, on the occasion of the 75th anniversary of his around-the-world journey, gauging the mood of the Earth's inhabitants for international cooperation, he was off to visit the Soviet Union, the communist confederation whose capital was Moscow. But we couldn't find that episode anywhere. We're still hot on its trail, and we hope to locate a copy, but for now we have to list the Moscow installment as missing. Naturally, we're suspicious, and we wonder if that program was suppressed during the virulent anti-communist campaigns of the 1940s and 50s. As I said, we'll continue to look for it, and if you have any clues, please let us know via email. But tonight we'll move on to Chapter 6 of the series when Mr. Corwin visits Czechoslovakia. There's a poignancy to this episode as we listen to it today. At its center is Edvard Benesch, who had been president of Czechoslovakia at the time of the Munich Agreement in 1938, also known as the Munich Betrayal, and who had resumed his presidency after World War II. As always, the politics were complicated, but Mr. Benesch seemed to most Western powers to be sincere in steering a middle road accommodating the communists in his coalition government while preserving freedom of the press, religion, and opposition parties. But Moscow was having none of it, and less than two years after the interview with Norman Corwin that you're about to hear, Edvard Benesch was ousted in a communist coup. Barely three months later, sick and broken, he died. Of course, you'll hear references to Munich and to the Soviet Union, the USSR, and you'll hear what Franklin D. Roosevelt had articulated as the four freedoms, freedom of speech and worship, and freedom from want and fear. 
From CBS, February 18, 1947, it's the sixth installment of Norman Corwin's One World Flight. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents One World Flight. Americans don't know quite exactly what is going here, and we are, we don't know here what is going in America, yes. what is going on in America, uh, what are the conditions, and so on, and so on, especially social conditions, and so on. You are listening to Edward Benish, president of Czechoslovakia, speaking at his desk in the presidential office of the Rachani Palace in Prague, Czechoslovakia, during an interview with the CBS playwright producer, Norman Corwin. The voice of Mr. Benish is one among several authentic sounds and voices recorded inside Czechoslovakia to be heard on this sixth of a series of 13 broadcasts based on Mr. Corwin's recent 37,000-mile global trip as first winner of the One World Flight Award. Norman Corwin. From Moscow to Prague is a distance of about 1,200 miles as a plane flies, and on a day in late July, an unsettled day in which the weather changed from country to country, we flew that leg of the One World Flight. The land beneath us, with its frequent streams and rivers, looked as green and innocent as though it had never heard the names of old wars, nor the rumor of new ones. Yet not long ago, over every inch of the distance we were consuming so quickly and comfortably, Armies had fought, blood had mixed in the streams and rivers, villages had been sacked, cities bombed. A dead man for every foot of the way. We flew over White Russia, Poland, a thin slice of Germany, crossed the Czech border, and soon sighted the Vltava, better known through music as the River Moldau, coiling around the terraced hills of Bohemia. And then, in a matter of minutes, the towers, bridges, rooftops, chimney pots of Prague. Prague is a graceful city, baroque and gothic, with a skyline of radio transmitters and cathedral spires. Its ancient history is obscure, but Czechoslovakia's modern history, the whole world knows only too well. This country, slightly smaller than Wisconsin, was the republic handed over to Hitler at Munich by agreement of two sister democracies. It was the vortex down which all of Europe was to be drawn. I was naturally anxious to see what betrayal and occupation and the trials of reconstruction had done to Czechoslovakia, whether its people were happy and confident whether they were still friendly to the United States, the country which had done so much to create their republic, how they felt about Russia, whether they were, as we'd been told along the way, a bridge between East and West, whether they were in a mood to embrace the concept of one world. I had no trouble getting answers to these questions. In no other country did I find people more articulate about themselves and the world. Nowhere a deeper sense of anti-fascism. 
For as President Benish said in an interview of which you'll hear more later... Every check must be anti-fascist. And every check must be against any, whatever, revival of fascism everywhere. Because with the fascism is connected intimately the greatest injustice which has given mates against us. This attitude seemed consistent all the way from the presidential office down to the coal mines. One afternoon, we drove out to Kladno, the mining city northwest of Prague, and went down into the Benish pits, named after the president. In no time, we were surrounded by miners, each eager to speak into the microphone to be heard above the din of mine machinery. Mrs. Slavka Grigorova of the Czech radio acted as interpreter, and in the following exchange, I have eliminated for the sake of time all translations going into Czech and the Czech replies. My first question was whether they were worried about another war. Yes, we are afraid of war, mainly because there is still Germany with so many Nazis and fascists who are allowed to carry on as before. And also the another reason is that there is still the Franco-Spain, which is always a new incentive for another war. Most of the men were internationally minded, but I found at least one isolationist. This fellow told our interpreter... Well, I'm only a simple worker, he says, and I look at the things in this way. Europe belongs to the Europeans, America to the Americans, and whatever we do at home is our own affair. I asked the miners whether they were inclined more to the east or to the west, and I got an answer indicating how deeply Munich had affected their attitudes and how well they remember it. Um, he says that with 99% we incline towards the east. And only with 1% we inclined towards the West. Uh, we uh, belong, uh, we are uh, Slavs, and we belong to the large Slavonic group of nations. And whenever we look at the past, we know what has happened to us from the West. I asked another miner what if he could make a wish tonight that might come true tomorrow, he would wish for. Well, I'd wish this, that all the gentlemen from the West and from the East would realize that we are men, that we are human beings, and that they would adjust their politics according to that. That they would adjust their politics to serve humanity, to serve mankind. And as long as they don't do this, we won't have any peace. Back in Prague, I talked to some students who were planning a World Student Congress for the following month. They, too, were insistent on the anti-fascist character of their movement. One of them, Miss Masalkova, said... Yes, we feel that there is a great danger. There's a great danger for fascism still now in Europe, for instance, in Germany. And uh, I found that in Czechoslovakia, as in most of the Europe conquered and occupied by Hitler, the terms fascist and fascism took on different meanings from what was generally given to them back home. In America, to a great many, fascist is often merely a bad name you call a person whose politics you don't like. It's a term thrown about loosely when a group breaks into heated argument. Some of us are prone to call each other fascists or communists over issues ranging from labor unions through rent control to atomic energy. But in a country like Czechoslovakia, a fascist means something quite real, not theoretical. The people of Prague saw fascism march down their main street. They saw their friends taken out of their homes and shot. They were tortured. It seemed that almost everybody we met had either personally suffered or was related to somebody who had been tortured or killed by the Nazis. Young Jan Silvera, for example, who assisted us in, this re in these recordings. He was the only one of a family of 18 
including parents, brothers, sisters, uncles, who was not executed by the Nazis. Yet none of these people seemed bitter or cynical. They were resolved to do everything they could not to let it happen again. But their resolution was never vindictive. It was calm, reasoning, and vigilant. I asked Dr. Seabee of the Czech underground, who had been tortured and sentenced to death by the Nazis, I asked him what he, as a man to whom fascism and war held a very deep personal meaning, what he would most urgently recommend to the United Nations. He replied, uh, This is what, I, what, what would be my uh, message, my humble message, message to the United Nations. Not to, uh, not to breed, breed the idea that there is a necessity, necessity of a war between the West and the East, between the Western and Eastern conception of life. I know that this is the last hope of fascism. They do everything, especially in Germany and in any part of the world, to breed this conception. One day, Bill Kugerman of the American Embassy drove us out to the town of Dobrich to visit a palace occupied by an association of Czech writers. The drive began in the heart of Prague, which city is as noisy as it is beautiful, and that's getting into a lot of noise. This recording of normal morning traffic will give you some idea. Prague, after Warsaw and Moscow, had an air of prosperity. It was second only to Stockholm among European capitals we visited in its appearance of well-being. Stocks seemed to be high in the stores. Produce was plentiful. You could even buy canned tomato juice, a luxury unheard of in most of the world outside of the United States, for the equivalent of six cents without any ration ticket. We drove through busy, narrow streets, past a monument enshrining the first Russian tank to enter the city in the battle for liberation, then into the outskirts, and we followed a bank of the Vltava to the countryside, to the romantic, non-political bohemia of song and legend. We went through magnificent pine groves and wound among wooded hills. My colleague, Lee Bland, reminded us, looking out at this first-class scenery, of how much first-class culture, how much good literature and music had come out of this little country. Tunes long familiar to Americans, tunes like humoresque. And the dances of the bartered bride by the Czech Schmetana. Familiar polka by the Czech Weinberger. Czechoslovakia is understandably proud of its artists, and it seems generally to take loving care of its culture, at least if its treatment of writers is any indication. When we reached the palace at Dobrich, we found it to be pretty much the kind you've built for yourself at some time or other in an architectural daydream. Big, sprawling, opulent, with for formal gardens and a swimming pool, library, ballroom, marble bathtubs and all that. The new coalition government decided writers were a national asset. And so it bought and turned over to a writer's syndicate this expensive palace. To join the syndicate, a writer must have three published books to his credit or free plays produced. Then the writer may, if he chooses, live at this palace for a stated period of the year, meals included, with or without family, for $2 a day. When we arrived, 
children were running around the palace chasing puppies. I asked their parents whether they had come there to work or to rest. When they came here, they called it a house of recreation, but they hope it'll develop into a house of creation. And now it seems that really people are beginning to work here, and when you awake in the morning, you can hear about ten typewriters rattling away, so it looks as though something was going to be created here. For a whole afternoon, we talked with a score of poets, novelists, essayists, playwrights, and it was pretty clear that they had a highly socialized sense of art. A young woman novelist, Miss Stenglover, had a personal formula for the relationship of the individual to the state. I am a Czech, and uh, whatever happens to my nation happens in the first place to me. So that all I can do with my work is to say I am a good Czech. These writers, like most people we met all the way around the world, were very curious about America, and their curiosity took the form of direct questions. I thought you might like to hear what people ask about us in a country like Czechoslovakia, and so I recorded, one after another, a series of such questions. Dr. Yurko would like to know if America has the right information about this country. Mr. Dunnar, the novelist, uh, asked whether America, with the Lincoln and Washington tradition, and uh, America, which has in its hands today the fate of the world with the at atomic bomb, whether America would be capable of using this dreadful weapon against progressive democratic regimes. What are the American people really like? And uh, what is America? Uh, Dr. Nauman would like to know if from uh, the American economic system there's not going to develop a new economic imperialism in the world. And Dr. Tanam would like to know how the young American people have reacted to the war and the problems uh, subsequent to the war. Um, Mr. Shafranik would like to know what truth there is in the uh, rumor that the Americans in the American zone of Germany prefer the Germans to other people. You will have noticed that some of these questions implied criticism of American policy, but it would be a mistake to assume that this meant unfriendliness. The Czechs, from all I gathered, have never forgotten America's role in helping them to establish their republic 29 years ago, and it was a pleasant surprise for me on July 26, 1946, to find an American flag made of flowers blooming handsomely at a monument to Woodrow Wilson on one of the main streets in Prague. I mentioned this in the course of an interview with Jan Papanek, Czech minister plenipotentiary, and he remarked... Yes, and uh, they are rather proud of it. They did not change. They continue to have uh, the same feelings toward the United States. They uh, appreciate, are thankful for all uh, the help uh, they have received during the war from them. And uh, this flag is only a small sign of uh, what they feel, uh, what they express, and will be expressing in the future. Mr. Papanik described the changes in Czechoslovak's economy brought about by the coalition government, a government consisting of four parties, Social Democrat, National Socialist, not in the Hitler meaning of National Socialist, by the way, People's Catholic, and Communist, with the latter holding a plurality in the number of seats. Mr. Papanik said that these changes, such as nationalization of heavy industries while retaining free enterprise in most of the lesser categories, were for the good of the country, and though they were at variance with American practice, need not alienate the friendship of Americans. 
We hope that America will understand us. We are uh, uh, trying to reshape our national, our economic life. We are trying to do it for the best of our people, of all of them. And uh, uh, we are set to succeed. As an American interested in prospects for one world, I shared with other Americans in that country a sense of pride in the example of a scientific body working there at the time. This was the medical mission of the Unitarian Service Committee, a group of outstanding American doctors who had volunteered to bring to the Czech people some of the techniques and drugs from which they had been cut off during the long Nazi occupation. These doctors, working without compensation and taking time away from their practices at home, lectured to medical faculties of universities, performed operations, and conducted clinics. It was a gesture of goodwill which had the full cooperation of our State Department, and it was not lost on the Czechs. One of several appreciative articles to appear in the Czech press was entitled, This is What International Relations Ought to Be. Mixed in with the warm sentiment toward America of the Czechs we met was a genuine love of Franklin Roosevelt. And typical of its expression was a statement by Bratislav Prokoska, president of the Czech Society for International Relations. We met in his office, and the noise is that of traffic in the street below. As uh, the people of United States of America concerns, I would only uh, have this uh, wish. They should be all in their dealings to our country in this manner as the late President Roosevelt was. We know very well that Roosevelt was one of the best friends of our country. And if uh, uh, there hasn't been uh, the personality of um, Roosevelt. I don't know how this last war uh, had finished. This reverence for the memory of Roosevelt was shared by most of the Czechs we met, including the first citizen of the country, President Edward Benish. We went to see him one day in the presidential palace. The appointment was made informally through our friend Kugerman at the American Embassy. No pass was required. Nobody challenged us at the gate. If there were guards about, I didn't see any. Somebody had forgotten to tell the president that I was bringing along a wire recorder. Moreover, he had never been recorded in this manner, not even for the Czech radio, and so a matter of precedence was involved. But he brushed all this aside. After a few pleasantries, we plunged right into the interview. I asked Mr. Benish point blank whether he thought there were irreconcilable differences between East and West. I don't think so. On the contrary, I was always the man who tried to persuade that there is no a fundamental difference and especially that they are not the reasons for any conflict between the East and the West. I then asked Mr. Benish whether he looked upon his country as a bridge between the U.S. and the USSR. Well, I, my formula is a, dif a little different. I don't say we are a bridge. I say we are not between the East and the West, although it is sometimes said so. Yes. I say that we are between the Russians and the Germans. Uh, yes. On the West, we are surrounded by the Germans. In the East, we are the neighbors of, the Rus of, of Russia, Soviet Russia. Yes. And I say, if 
any possibility of a reconstruction of Germany will erase again. And if Germany will come again to, a, to the power, or if somebody, either from the East or from the East, would use Germany again for uh, to reconstruct them and use their power against somebody, yes. they would be the first all, always to be attacked by the Germans. I was anxious to find out what the president thought of Czechoslovakia's progress in recovering from the war, so I asked him... Mr. President, before my arrival in Prague, I was told by a number of people that Czechoslovakia was making the most rapid recovery and the best adjustment to international conditions of any country in Europe. Is this true? And if so, to what do you attribute it? According to my view, it is true. The reasons are rather complicated and numerous. First of all, we have not been devastated by the war in such a degree as many of the European countries were. Yes, I see. Second, the German occupation has strengthened the morale of Czechoslovakia. The third reason was that we have felt that in Norway we have contributed to the general disaster of the world and of Czechoslovakia. As you know, the, according to my view, the war began with Munich. The president then emphasized the importance of remembering what Munich had meant to his country. I must emphasize that if America and if the public opinion in America this once more imagine what meant Munich for a small nation. Again and again, this plea was made by Czechs of all walks of life. In effect, they all said, please tell Americans not to forget what happened at Munich and the circumstances under which it could happen again. Tell them to try to understand that our attitude toward foreign policy and home economy is different from theirs because our experience was different. The last interview we had in Czechoslovakia was with Professor J.B. Kozak, lecturer in political philosophy at Charles University in Prague. He criticized both the American and Russian definitions of democracy and went on to state the Czech position. In the United States, too much of equality has been sacrificed to liberties. In the Soviet Union, maybe too many liberties have been sacrificed to the ideal of equality. For the time being, we must place the emphasis on the freedom from want and the freedom from fear, you will understand us. But we are determined to implement all the four freedoms. And we shall do so in this country. Take my word for that. The professor said he knew America well, having spent some years in this country, including a period on the faculty at Oberlin College. Out of what he had observed of world affairs since he had last been in the United States, he posed three questions to Americans at large. They were these. President Roosevelt, whom I loved very much, once said that the only thing we must fear is fear. How many 
of you Americans. Have fear. My second question. I would start from a similar statement. The only persons we should distrust are those who sow distrust. How many of you trust those who are sowing this international distrust? My third question. Do you still believe that free enterprise, I mean without any government or interference, can prevent or solve economic depressions? Are you sure that you are going to have no more economic depression? Of economics in Czechoslovakia, Professor Kozak explained that in carrying out the nationalization of heavy industries, the coalition government had performed a practically painless operation because it meant cutting these industries loose from the tentacles of German financial control and did not, therefore, dislocate Czech interests. He credited the new government with having brought the Czechs very far, very quickly. And, of course, things are improving by leaps and bounds in this country. It is one of the happy islands in Europe, as you have probably found out yourself. The professor was not alone in agreeing with foreign observers that Czechoslovakia had made rapid recovery. Amid the general austerity, confusion, and devastation abounding in Europe, these people seemed confident of where they were going and had a definite sense of progress. I recalled what Minister Poponik had said. We are moving. We are set to succeed. And of what a coal miner named Spadnik had said in Kladno, Spadnik, who had worked in the same mines for 33 years, I asked him... How do you feel about the recent nationalization of the mines? <laughs> He says, the work of all our miners is much more enthusiastic because we all feel we are working on our own. And what the president himself had said of the condition of his country one short year after the liberation. You can see in the streets of Prague, everybody is working, everybody is, is enthusiastic, every, there is a very great uh, 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 elan, a very great enthusiasm spirit for the work and all they knew that they are working for a new liberty and for a new independence. This from the country which such a short time ago was dismembered at Munich and later invaded by the invincible Wehrmacht. This from little Czechoslovakia which was to have been an obedient province of the greater Germany for the next thousand years. The thousand years of the fascist millennium. Nine years ago, Czechoslovakia stood at the crossroads of war. Today, perhaps, it stands in the position of a bridge at the crossroads of peace. To many of her people, the way to the future is the middle way, the way they are traveling, a way which reconciles socialism and private enterprise by running them side by side. From where they're standing, looking toward horizons ringed by Russians, Germans, Poles, Romanians, and Hungarians, with a monument to the Red Army on one street and an American flag in flowers on another, they believe this way of theirs is a shortcut to the grand concourse called One World.
have been listening to Norman Corwin, first winner of the Wendell Wilkie One World Flight Award, in the sixth of a series of broadcasts based on his recent 37,000-mile global tour. All recorded voices heard on this broadcast were transcribed in Czechoslovakia. Next week at this time, One World Flight visits Italy. Tonight's musical score was composed and directed by Alexander Semler. Guy Della Chapo was associate director. This is Lee Vines, and this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. One World Flight, program number six of Norman Corwin's trip around the world in 1946. Just as America heard it in the winter of 1947, you heard it tonight on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Whenever we play an episode of The Eternal Light, we almost always mention the length of its run on NBC, which stretched from the mid-1940s through the beginning of the 1980s. Naturally, that means it was securely on the air in 1961, the anniversary year we're celebrating here at WAMU. If you'd been listening on the Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend that year, you would have heard a story called A Cigar Box and a Promise, and it would have helped you to know that a little box or can into which folks were encouraged to drop charitable contributions is known in Yiddish as a pushke. You'll hear all about it now, and hear Mandel Kramer, our current Johnny Dollar, in the role of the reporter in this episode of the NBC series, The Eternal Light. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil olive beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually in the tabernacle of the congregation. And it shall be a statute forever in your generation. The Eternal Light. The National Broadcasting Company and its affiliated independent stations present The Eternal Light, a program which comes to you under the auspices of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. Our program today, A Cigar Box and a Promise, was written by Johanna Johnston and is the last in this series of programs of dreamers and builders of our world today. It just wasn't the kind of story I'm used to, you know. I'm used to the other kind. Every reporter is. Crime, draft, delinquency, trouble. And all that sort of thing I can take in my stride. That I can understand. But this floored me. Two men. Two brothers. Steel men, actually. Standing at the center of something they call Operation Crossroads. Thank you, Mr. Most. Thank you, Mr. Garrison, for helping me learn to walk. She's a little bit of a thing, all starchy dress and big smile. Crippled in an auto accident when she was only three. 
Now, at Operation Crossroads, she's learned to walk again, even to run. And there are dozens of other kids, grown-ups too, crippled by other kinds of accidents or disease or born handicapped, all being helped. And then there are all those youngsters I never dreamed there could be so many, born into silence. Thank you, Mr. Gamerson. Thank you, Mr. Mose, for helping me learn to talk. Operation Crossroads. Outside, it's a big, new, handsome building, all red brick and marble and glass, on a quiet, shady street with comfortable frame houses all around. You can see that a lot of care has gone into it. But then you go inside. Would you like a tour of the building? I'd be more than happy. Mr. Mose and Mr. Garrison are always glad to have people see the work that's going on here. But it may take a little time. There are the speech therapy rooms, the nurseries, the classrooms for the cerebral palsy children, the physical therapy rooms, the dental clinic. Oh, excuse me just a moment. Um, I just want to help that young man to the elevator. He's much better than he was, but still, I'll be right back. Well, I took the tour, and that was when I really began to feel staggered. Two brothers, steel men, you understand, working businessmen, were responsible for all this. Equipment. Equipment that positively glittered. All of it the latest, the finest obtainable. Three floors of it. And everywhere, the teachers, the therapists, the trained instructors helping the kids, the grown-ups, make the most of it. The young lady who was my guide smiled a little. Yes, I know. A lot of people are pretty overwhelmed by it all. It is impressive. One of the finest rehabilitation centers anywhere, not just in the South. And, of course, you haven't seen the other building yet. The one out back that fronts on Vine Street. That's the memorial building, where there are all sorts of offices and auditoriums and meeting rooms that various charitable and civic organizations can use free. Oh, and the library's there, too. They built that, too? Oh, yes. And equipped it and maintain it for the use of the community. And here at the center, treatment is given free? To anyone who needs it and can't pay. There is a sliding scale of fees for those who can. But all this... Well, this must have cost a fortune. And they're putting more into it all the time. I just don't get it. I don't understand. They've got a very successful steel business, granted, but they must pour all their profits into this and then some. Why? They like to help others, that's all. But on such a scale? Well, this is a sort of setup a city would be proud to finance. Well, as I said, more and more the community is beginning to share in the work. But they began it. They established it, they maintain and operate it, they are ultimately responsible. That's right. How come? I mean, whatever got them started on such a fantastic venture? Why don't you talk to them yourself and ask? Or talk to Mr. Garrison. He's the one who does most of the talking for the two of them. He'll be here at the center sometime soon. He and Mr. Mose stop in every day. Talk to Mr. Garrison. Then you'll see. Siskin is their last name. Did I mention that before? Mose and Garrison Siskin, and they live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where they own and operate the Siskin Steel and Supply Company. Garrison Siskin, it turned out, is a friendly, sturdy guy in his 50s with a nice, quick, down-to-earth way of talking. Seen it all? Good. Say, do you see little Kathy up in the cerebral palsy nursery? They point her out. Isn't she a doll? A year ago, she couldn't move her arms at all. Now she's making great pictures with finger paint. Yes, yes, I, I think I did see her. 
Mr. Siskin, what I'd like to know is what got you and your brother started on such an undertaking as this? What started us? <laughs> Heck, fellow, if you want to know what really started us, I suppose you'd have to go way, way back. Back to an old cigar box. An old cigar box? <laughs> yeah, the Pushka. Oh. That was how Mose and I knew it, what Mom and Dad called it. Well, that Pushka was a part of life as far back as I can remember. Want to hear about the Pushka? Sure, I wanted to hear about the Pushkin. So Garrison Siskin told me. Well, it seems things hadn't always been so well with the Siskins. A matter of fact, when Robert Siskin, the father of the family, first came to Chattanooga around the turn of the century, he was a pack peddler. Later, he went to work for a junk dealer. It didn't make for much money in the house. To raise Moshe and Gershon, that's what they were called then, and their little sister, still... So. For the rent? So. And uh, one, two, four, five, seven, eight, two dollars for food. Uh, will it be enough, Anna? Well, Robert, we will make it do. But isn't there anything at all to put aside toward new shoes for the boys? New shoes? Well, just for Gershon, and he's up falling to pieces. Look, Anna, after the money for rent and food, two half dollars and one quarter left over. And there's the gas to pay. But I see two half dollars and two quarters. Two? <laughs> oh, that other quarter's for the pushki. Oh, the pushki. <laughs> well, maybe next week, then, we can set something aside. Uh, or we could uh, forget the pushki this week. Forget the pushki? Well, but what are you thinking of? If the boys need shoes, they work hard every day after school, like little soldiers. Oh, yes, I know, but the pushki is almost empty as it is. Suppose someone should come to the door in real need. Oh, Gershon can manage a little longer. Put the quarter where it belongs, Robert. In the pushkin. The pushkin is the good deeds box. And poor as the Siskins were, some part of their income always went into it. To give to others who were needier. As I said in the beginning, I'm a reporter. I'm used to stories of crime, trouble, and delinquency. And I've interviewed enough people in trouble to know how one false step can lead almost automatically to the next one and the next. But one right step? Could a good deeds box they knew in their childhood really have been all that set Mose and Garrison Siskin off on such an extensive course of philanthropy? Well, no. I wouldn't say that was the whole story, no. I just meant Mom and Dad brought us up with the idea we were supposed to help others whenever we possibly could. I remember at school sharing the one piece of bread I brought for lunch with some real poor kid. So, naturally, when things got a little better, well, naturally, we gave a little more. But still, that's not all the story behind Operation Crossroads. No, there's more. Well, I went to work to get the rest of the story. I heard how when Mose and Garrison were still youngsters, their father went into the junk business himself with a capital of $6. And when Garrison was graduated from high school and won a scholarship to a university up north, there wasn't enough money for his train fare. I heard how both Mose and Garrison went to work in their father's junkyard then. And then, sometime in the 20s, there was the accident to Robert Siskin's leg. An accident that led to infection, which led to an amputation. An amputation that didn't help. Suddenly, Robert Siskin was dead. 
After that, his two sons sat in a little shed at the yard and faced the future. Well, Mose, we've worked side by side in the yard for quite a while now. Together, I guess we'll manage. Yeah. I just want to think, Harrison. Yes? What's that, Mose? You know as well as I do, I'm not much good at paperwork, orders, bills, that stuff. Not much good talking to customers either. I'm okay out in the yard. But the inside stuff, uh-uh. You've got to take over in here. Well, all right, Mose, if that's how you want it. I'll take on the inside stuff. You're in charge outside. But 50-50 all the way, okay? Okay. All right, if I'm Mr. Inside, I better get at these invoices. And Mr. Outside, I better get out there. Oh, oh uh, wait a minute. Look here, what I brought from home. <laughs> the pushkin. Yeah. I got a new box for Mom at home. I thought it'd be nice to have the old one here. Sure. There's always some down and outer wandering by. Uh, it'd be handy. We can both put in cash whenever we have any. Both sure. take out whenever we see some reason. No need to account for it. It'll just be here when needed. Good. Dad might like it. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know, but maybe... Maybe it'll bring us some of the kind of luck we need to. Okay, back to work. Well, whether the Pushka had anything to do with it or not, gradually things did start to go better with the Siskin brothers. Mr. Outside and Mr. Inside working together made quite a team. Things got comfortable enough, so first one, then the other, got married, began to raise families. Things got better and better. The Siskin Junkyard became the Siskin Steel and Supply Company, dealing with bigger and bigger companies all over the South. There was more and more money being put into the Pushka. Bigger and bigger sums handed out. It was just part of life. And then in the 1940s... Yes, it was then I had my accident. The accident to my leg. So much like Dad's accident. I was on a trip to New York. I'd gotten out of some station for a little stretch. Then when I was hurrying to get back on the train again, that steel grid they used to cover the train steps fell smash against my leg. Well, I was pretty near knocked out. The porter got me on board somehow. He and the conductors tried first aid. But it was plain I was in bad trouble. At the next station, they got me off the train and rushed me to a hospital. And there's where the thing happened that really led to, well, Operation Crossroads and all the rest. He told me what had happened. There were hours of x-rays and examinations and consultations. And all the while, his fever was going up. And then the doctor told him they would have to amputate his leg. Like Dad. Just like Dad. And then... Two days later, he, he was dead. Suppose... Suppose I won't let you amputate, Doctor. Won't let us? You can't do it without my consent. I'm not giving it. I'm afraid you're not quite aware of what you're saying, Mr. Siskin. Well, it's not surprising with that fever. Now I know what I'm saying. I refuse my consent. But I've tried to tell you, amputation is your only hope. There's a blood clot and infection. There's... No hope at all without it. Nothing that'll help. You can pray. All right, then. I'll pray. And so Garrison Siskin told me, all through that long, terrible, feverish night, he prayed. Dear God, no one can help me but you. Please help me. Help me. I promise. I promise. 
No. No. God, please. Help me now. When I can't help myself. And I promise. I'll spend the rest of my life helping others who can't help themselves. Help me. I promise. I, I promise. In the morning, his fever had gone down. The doctors could hardly believe it. They watched him all that day and the next. And then they realized some kind of miracle had taken place. The clot had dissolved. The infection subsided. He would live. He would live. But nobody knew if he would ever walk again. Then Garrison Siskin told me how he went home to Chattanooga in a wheelchair and began to fight that battle. Exercises and more exercises. He was stubborn. He was determined. Look, Mose. A step. All by myself. Hey, look up. Uh-huh. It's all right. I, I've got the chair now. Now, see here, Garrison. Should you be uh, rushing it like this? Now, you could fall and be back where you were. I'm going to learn to walk again, Mose. With God's help, I've made it this far. With his help, I'm going to make it all the way. And then, yeah, then, then, with his help, I'm really going to start keeping that promise I made. There it was. That promise he made. Like the promises a lot of us make when we're in trouble and then forget when things get better. Only he didn't forget it. Helping others out of the good deeds box had always been something he and Mose took for granted. But now... Hi, boy. How you going today? Mose, just the person I wanted to see. I just read a piece in the paper here. Some poor woman, her husband's dead, she has this little kid. Well, it's a terrible story. I've got to do something. You get her some money so she can pay the rent and keep the kid. Will you help me get it to her? Well, sure, sure. Go on. Still not able to get around myself. I could like to. Uh, here. I've got uh, 320s in this envelope, so uh, what I was thinking, if Janie's still out at the yard, you could uh, get it to her and then drop her off at this address to uh, leave the money. Mm. Only be sure to tell her she's absolutely not to say where it came from, just from a friend. Uh, is she out there, Mose? Well, no. Matter of fact, she's not. But we can figure out some other way, Garrison. Ah. Well, sure. Let's see. I'll... I was just so sure she'd be there. A matter of fact, I, uh... Send her out to Hickson. A family I'd heard about out there. Father sick, whole family hungry. I put a hundred in an envelope for him. You put a hundred? Well, yeah. Th- that promise you made, Garrison, I, I sort of figured I'm in on that, too. Just like you. But, Mose, it, it, was, it was just my promise. It, my life it was saved. Yeah, I know. But still, we've always done everything 50-50. I'd like to be in on this, too. Okay, Mose. Fine. But what? What I mean? Well, fine, fine. Uh, all right. Now let's uh, let's see about how to get this help to the woman I read about. In the months after that, Garrison Siskin did begin to get around better. He was walking normally within a year. What he didn't tell me 
was how many people all around Chattanooga suddenly found themselves with the help they needed. Just when things looked blackest. Help that seemed to come out of nowhere. And it wasn't just with funds that Mose and Garrison helped. You talk with the kid, Mose. What do you think? Well, he's kind of jumpy. Well, sure, three years in the penitentiary. But I think maybe there's some good stuff in him. If he just gets a chance somewhere to make good on his parole. Okay. I say let's hire him. I can use him in the yard. You really think this old guy can sober up Garrison? He's been drunk for ten years now. Huh. I think maybe he can sober up if he knows we're counting on him. That he's doing some kind of a real job at last. Well, okay. Let's hire him. Once they'd really started looking out for people in trouble, there just wasn't any stopping. And then they saw other things. Steel ramps for the churches so people in wheelchairs could get in and out. Steel they could furnish for a youth center. Reconstruction for a school for retarded children they could expedite. And then somehow, once they got involved with building... Mose, remember, remember I, I told you right after I got back from the hospital how I had a sort of a, a, sort of a vision that night I, I thought it was the end. The vision of a, a little chapel. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Uh, not too big or fancy. Just a, a place where anybody could go in to, to pray. Any sect, no sect. I thought of it as a, a kind of a memorial to mom and dad, you know. Yeah, I remember. Why don't we get started with that, Garrison? It was 1950 when the chapel was finished. Not too big. Not too fancy just the way Garrison had wanted it. But somehow, building it, seeing how all kinds of people did use it, the two of them began to see how the city needed a place where all sorts of charitable groups would have a center for operations. So they built the memorial building, with all its offices and meeting rooms available rent-free. Then, a while after that, Garrison got interested in a struggling little school for deaf children. Listen, Mose, we've got to help that school. It's doing a great work for kids, just great. Kids that have never heard a sound, never known how to speak. You should see their faces when they first learn to say cat or dog. But the folks that are running it hardly have any equipment at all. Well, let's see about getting them some. As a matter of fact, the whole setup ought to be enlarged. They could almost use a whole building. Mm -hmm. A whole building. A really big, modern, well-equipped building. And that would be a place where those poor youngsters with cerebral palsy could be treated, too. Yeah? It'd take a lot of money, Mose. More than we could possibly lay our hands on now after building the memorial building, you know. But just think. Think what it would mean. Maybe we could get that land back at the memorial on Oak Street to make the two buildings kind of a unit. Mose, we must find a way of doing it. And that, Garrison Siskin told me, was the way the rehabilitation center in Chattanooga called Operation Crossroads came into being. You know, I've seen lots of examples of one false step leading to another and yet another, but it never occurred to me that it might work the other way, too. Oh, and uh, say, have you seen our Center for Handicapped Workers, Abilities Incorporated? We're just getting underway there, but once we got involved with the center, we began to realize there are a lot of disabled people with plenty of abilities, Mr. Too. Siskin, just one more question, if you don't mind. With all this activity... How do you and your brother have any time left for the steel business? It does help to make all the rest possible, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, sure, but don't worry, we find time. We get up early, Mose and I. We're out the yard by six every morning. And don't forget, we've got lots of people helping us at the re your rehabilitation center now, too. 
You know, it's a funny thing. Just get people started at something like that. Let them see a child they've helped start walking or, or talking, and there's no stopping them. And maybe that's all it is with Mose and me, too. Once we started, well, we just couldn't stop. I looked at him, and he looked like a happy man. He didn't look like a man driven by uncontrollable forces. But maybe he is. Maybe the drive to do good, once it gets underway, started by a cigar box or a promise or whatever, can be just as strong as the drive to evil. Hey, I'm a reporter. What am I doing talking this way? It's just that I'm not used to this kind of a story. That's all. I wish I were. Eternal Light Drama Today, A Cigar Box and a Promise by Johanna Johnston was the last program in this Dreamers and Builders series. Cantor Robert H. Siegel sang the liturgical introduction. Featured in the cast were Carl Weber as Garrison, Joe DeSantis as Mose, Patricia Wheel as the receptionist, Gilbert Mack as Robert Siskin, Bryna Rayburn as Anna, his wife, Joseph Bell as the doctor, with Ellen Hansen and Philip Visco. Mandel Kramer was the reporter. This is Howard Reed. Our program was directed by Daniel Sutter. Portions of this program were pre-recorded. This weekly program is presented under the auspices of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. A cigar box and a promise. An episode of The Eternal Light from Thanksgiving weekend in 1961, just a month after WAMU had made its first broadcast. Before we close this edition of the big broadcast, we want to play you one more thing you definitely would have heard on the radio in 1961. In fact, you couldn't escape it. It was the biggest musical phenomenon of the year, though it had first made it to Top 40 Radio and to number one on the charts in 1960. But after 15 weeks on the Billboard Hot 100 in that year, it reappeared in November of 1961, hit number one again, and stayed on the chart for another 18 weeks. It spawned dozens of other records, too, because, above all, it was a dance craze that, as they used to say, swept the nation. Hank Ballard wrote the tune, and he recorded a hit version of it in 1958, but in June of the next year, another artist recorded it for Cameo Parkway Records. They released it a year later, and the rest really was history. Chubby Checker's version of The Twist. 
It'll bring us to the end of the big broadcast tonight. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Barnaby Bristol and Mike Kidd, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks again to everyone who sent in messages to help us celebrate WAMU's 60th anniversary. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. Shit!